What is up, fools? It is February 9th, 2021. It's a Tuesday for those of you keeping track, at least by Arabic numerals and the calendar as we know it that exists, which is strange. Somebody posted on Twitter yesterday, if you fly to Mars, there is no 365 days in the year. It's like, wow, that's fucking mind-boggling. Anyways, it's just wild. You go anywhere else in the universe and a day is different. You know, they don't even, we don't even know if they use days. They use days, weeks, months, years. Does any of this stuff even matter? I mean, it's all stuff conceived of by humans. So theoretically, when you go to another planet and if there's life there, you know, who knows? And then it becomes a bigger question. Like, what is time? Well, what's this thing that's aging us? If the numbers and the dates and stuff don't matter, we're all kind of on this linear path going from one direction forward somewhere because we're getting older, right? So what the hell is going on out there? You know, time is a human construct, but I guess some of it exists out there. It's wild. Anyways, we're going to get into other anomalies today. And it's just a coincidence. I was on that line of thought and we got Mick West on today to try to debunk some alien shit. (laughs) First, before we get started, though... I want to shout out my patrons who are people that make this podcast possible. My patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I love them. You should love them, especially if you love the content. So let's give them some love. I'll give you the two rules for today's podcast and we'll get on with it. First and foremost, my man, George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform. If you listen to this show because you are an investor or a trader or you're interested in finance and you want to take your knowledge one level up from where mine is, which is basically mine is at the very bottom. This is not investment advice, remember. Uh, I would recommend that you check out Rebel Capitalist Pro because George Gammon, Lynn Alden, and Chris McIntosh know what they're talking about. You're going to get real concentrated information, uh, especially on macro But on the whole thing, from a, you know, Austrian perspective, from a perspective that's skeptical of the system, which I know many of my listeners are, which I know I am, which is why I like having George on, which is why I like being on his show, which is why I love the fact that he's a patron, because it's easy to shout him out. I know him. He's smart. He's a nice guy. His platform is worth it. I am a member. The link to that is in my podcast description if you want to check it out for yourself. If you need any help, contact George. His contact info is all over the place. He's a nice guy. Tell him QTR sent you, and we'll get on with life. This podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver provider over at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I order my physical gold and silver bullion. That is not a lie. That is no bullshit. It is. Why? Because they turn around my orders quickly. They ship the same day. They always seem to have inventory in stock. And I like the guys over there very much. They're nice, easy, relaxed to do business with. Even when they became a supporter of the podcast, I enjoy speaking with them. Two guys over there, Rob and Rob. Very nice guys. Uh, so also, by the way, want to thank Kathy for her continued contributions at JM Bullion, but she has moved up at the company. And so now QTR podcast listeners have the lovely Laura... L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. If you want personalized service, email Laura. Tell her you're a QTR podcast listener, and she will work with you. This way you don't have to navigate the website, and you can have a, uh, a more personalized experience uh, if you're into buying gold and silver, if you're into that kind of stuff. They've been in business for a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales, folks. JM Bullion, we like them very much. Link to them is also in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by the Sang Lucci Steam Room. It's one of a kind. 
the Sangluchi Steam Room. They are Sangluchi and Wall Street Jesus. You know them. I know them. They're basically a household name at this point when it comes to options trading. They are the original OGs of options trading. I have known these guys for a decade. Their platform, the Steam Room, is a constantly evolving, beautiful piece of software that helps you look at where the big money is coming into the options market, which can be very lucrative information if you play in the equities market. And it's just nice to know where the steam is coming in on the street. A lot of times you see steam come into a big name. What does that mean? means, hey, something might be up. Maybe you want to raise your eyebrows. And there's no better piece of software that lets you do that than the Sang Lucci Steam Room. If you want to check it out, you want to try it for free, get in touch with Lucci, get in touch with Charlie Bathgate, All their links are in my podcast description. Let them know that I sent you. Tell them you're a listener. Tell them you want them to work with you. They will make all your dreams come true. It's the kind of piece of software. And by that, I mean, this is not an endorsement that they will make all your dreams come true. (laughs) But they're nice people to work with and they'll work with you. Oh, I've said too much. Here come the lawsuits. Anyways, check out the Steam Room. Great platform. Great guys. Can be lucrative if you don't use it like an idiot. And uh, that's it. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at The Trader's Path, which is one of my favorite day trading communities. If you're looking for a community of people to surround yourself with on the daily, pass around ideas, uh, daily watch lists, investor education, Sunday night scans. Pete does some great Sunday night scans for the week ahead. Check out The Trader's Path. It is a no bullshit trading service run by another honest guy that I like, my buddy Pete Hedges. And the links to all those wonderful people and wonderful services that I actually know are actually honest people and that I actually endorse, not just because they are supporters of the podcast. That's all in my podcast description. We think about that shit. This podcast also brought to you by Investors Underground and my friends at Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. Corvus Gold, Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, my homeboy, Crichton Titus. Hey, Russ was just at the Super Bowl. Big Tampa Bay fan. Congratulations. And some of my newest patrons, Tyler and Tom Smalley, Charlie Yu is in the house, John Grovem, thank you brother for signing up, Bryce Martell, Hot Butter and ELA is in the house, Justin Katz and Reese Holcomb, user 1234, all my friends that checked in on PayPal too, I appreciate the shit out of you guys, how about some older patrons like Judy White still with me and Tyler Bonneman, Justin Vaccaro, Patrick Flynn, Creepy old person, I think this says. Creepy, oh, I can't say I don't want to say that. (laughs) You know who you are. Thanks for the continued Patreon support. Pivotal Capital, what's up, homeboy? All right. Rules for the podcast. There is a three-drink minimum for this podcast, always and forever. Finally, we're going to get this in under the seven-minute mark. This podcast is not investment advice, life advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations. Please don't listen to anything I have to say. Do everything in your own life at your own risk. Enough said let's get started all right very happy to have a friend of mine on the podcast today from metabunk.org mick west he is a science writer he is a skeptical investigator and retired video game programmer he programmed the tony hawk pro skater series of course which was one of my favorites you've probably seen him uh on joe rogan or numerous other podcasts that he does but his site metabunk is also awesome. Uh, I wanted to have... So I had Mick on back last summer, and I have never gotten so much hate mail from a podcast before. I absolutely loved it. And I like to have Mick on because in terms of 
preeminent debunkers, people that can explain themselves well, people that uh, I, you know, in my opinion, do the best job of making debunking digestible for people without coming off as, you know, pompous or arrogant because immediately conspiracy theorists always go to that, you know, oh, you know, these pompous scientists, these pompous, you know, facts getting in the way of things. Um, and so I, I was very happy to have Mick West on over last summer to try to debunk whatever we talked about for two and a half hours. But more specifically, over the last, I don't know, couple of years, you know, I've been following the Bob Lazar story all the way back since he had been on Art Bell, which was like back in the 90s when this story broke in Las Vegas. And I had followed it loosely. And then all of a sudden, like five years ago, the story started to become a thing again. He kind of, Lazar kind of went off into the ether somewhere. And then he had this brilliant resurrection over the last four or five years where Jeremy Corbell has done this documentary about him and he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. And of course, now he's written a book and uh, and his story has bubbled up uh, from underground once again. And so what I did was, you know, and I want to believe Bob Lazar and we'll talk about what I think about his claims uh, during this podcast. Um, but over the course of doing my own investigation, uh, I could never get past, you know, Stanton Friedman's old criticism of, hey, you know, if he lied about his education, there really doesn't seem to be any proof to validate his education. Well, what, you know, what else is he lying about? And so I reached out to Mick West because I've been really begging for somebody to talk to me about this. If you noticed on my past podcast, I would bring it up with people once in a while. Nobody understands it. Nobody listens to it. Nobody really understands what the hell's going on. So I reached out to Mick last month and said, hey, you want to come on and debunk the Lazar thing? And he said no. And I was like, so I just badgered him via email. And he said, all right, give me a month or whatever. So uh, we decided on February 9th, and it's February 9th. And Mick West, what's going on, dude? Woohoo! Well, yeah. Uh, well, the reason I kind of didn't want to talk about Bob Lazar was that, yeah, I felt like I didn't really know that much about him. Uh, obviously, I'd seen like the stuff that had come up over the the last uh, few years with him being on Joe Rogan and with the Corbell stuff. Uh, but you know, when you start digging into this, there's just so much uh, information out there, and it's not just there's like you know a lot of stuff that Bob Lazar has put out. There's lots of stuff that other people have put out uh, looking into Bob Lazar. So if you if you start you know just do a little bit of googling. You end up finding people who were debunking him like many, many, many years ago. Like you mentioned, uh, Stanton Friedman, uh, and he did like this very was back in he did something back in '97, I think, uh, where he looked at just some of the claims that Lazaro had made and just basically concluded he was a fraud and didn't want to go further, uh, didn't want to go forward with that. But there's all kinds of interesting things. In, in Lazar's uh, history, which you know, I wasn't even aware of until I started digging into it, like his, uh, his multiple wives and the things that happened to them and things like that. It's uh, quite fascinating. Yeah, the interesting thing about his story is that, and I think the thing that makes it difficult for some people to immediately reject it, is there is 
in my opinion, just based on what I know offhand, and we'll compare notes, but there are some mm. shreds of truth to, some, to some of the things that he says. And I yeah. feel like the actual objective truth is somewhere between, you know, he's a total fraud and he's and he and everything he says is the truth. I think there's some things that are completely true and some things that are total bullshit. Does that what does that sound like to you, Mick? It, yeah, that sounds as good. Obviously, there's some some things he says that he was doing that you can kind of verify. Like you know, he was. Uh, you know, his name shows up. Maybe we should like kind of go through real quick the kind of timeline just so that we're on the same page here. Yeah, let's do it. Go like, ahead. Yeah. All right. So, like from from what I know, uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, I was writing out a timeline, and one of the things I wanted to do was put it in context, uh, like historical context. So I started back in 1947. I'm not going to go into much detail, but 1947 was the Roswell uh, event. Yeah, people are familiar with that. 1961 the Barney and Betty Hill abduction, which is kind of where the idea of the you know, little gray men from Zeta Reticula comes in, like these Barney and Betty Hill, this couple, uh, claim they were abducted and been probed by aliens. It's kind of the classic alien abduction thing. Uh, then fast forward a few years to 1977 when the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out which I think like, kind of further cemented this whole idea of, of you know, little aliens in everybody's mind. Uh, and then, you know, we get to Bob Lazar, and he claims to have graduated MIT in 1982 with a, an MS in physics, I believe, from, from MIT. I think he claims two different, uh, two different places where he got... Oh, it was, a, it was MS in physics from MIT and an Cow. MS... Uh, from electronics, yep. uh, from from uh, the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, uh, and that was in 1982. And then he says he went to work at the Los Alamos National Lab in the Particle Accelerator Division, and his name shows up in the Los Alamos National Lab, lab phone book from 1982, but it's got this little little mark next to it, KM which uh, stands for Kirk Meyer, which was like a subcontractor who, who did work at the Los Alamos National Lab. And so it's not clear what he actually did there. Uh, it's also not clear if he has these, these credentials, but we're going to get to that in a, in a, in a bit. Then a uh, bunch of stuff happened between 82 and ooh, 88. Uh, he, uh, he had a lot of financial issues and ended up declaring bankruptcy in 87. And he was married to one woman. And then he apparently, yeah, from what I read, left her and married another woman. And then his first wife committed suicide two days later, which is you know, obviously a pretty dramatic and traumatic event. And then he had to remarry uh, his second wife because I think he was technically still married to the first wife when, when he married the first wife, when he married the second wife. But this is just kind of like a bunch of interesting things that happened between him being in Los Alamos, he's showing up in the phone book, and then in 1988. And in 1988, he met a guy called John Lear, who is the uh, son of the guy who uh, invented the Learjet, Bill Lear, I think, your father, and claims at that time that he decided to get back in the game and he says he calls up Edward Teller, the famous physician who he met back at, uh, at Los Alamos, and then gets a job 
working at the at this place called S4, which is a division of yeah, well, not division is an area south of Area 51, um, which they which is where he was tasked with back engineering flying saucers, and he he got to see a whole bunch of flying saucers and look at them. That only lasted a few months, and apparently he was uh, caught showing people something in the desert and fired. So he said, so he claims there's some video of this. And shortly after that, he started anonymously giving interviews to George Knapp, a local journalist, and uh, as the, under the name of Dennis, and then quickly came out as his real self, and then started telling this really complicated long story about him analyzing these flying saucers, a story from which he has not diverged very much uh, to this day. And that's about the long and the short of it. And I suppose, like, since then, basically, he has been this figure in ufology, uh, someone who, you know, George Knapp actually kind of refers to this case as uh, as being the thing that kind of made his career, like George Knapp's career. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing. We can also talk about that. And that's kind of something that's actually continued to this day. I mean, George Knapp is still doing shows about uh, uh, about uh, Bob Lazar. Yeah. He just did, uh, he just did Rogan too, uh, like two weeks ago, I think, or, or about a month ago, maybe. George Knapp? Yeah, him and Jeremy Corbell, of course, had to be there as well in this, this right. the side, yeah, yeah. The side carriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Jeremy Corbell has kind of emerged as being the, the protege slash slash heir apparent Ugh. of George Knapp and is kind of like taking over with the uh, the producing of things. Yeah, it's a kind of a different style, though. I kind of like George Knapp. He's a fairly uh, smart guy. I do, too. Yeah, but I think Corbell is uh, of a different ilk. He's a lot more, yeah. a lot more dramatic. He's never met an unsubstantiated claim that he doesn't love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and is is uh, I don't know. You you look at the the films he does, like these documentaries, and they're very very dramatic. It's all about weaponizing your curiosity, and there's big shots of the rotating galaxy, and these brightly colored things, and this high drama and stuff. It's just. It's uh, it's not my cup of tea, I must I must say. Well, when I watched the uh, Bob Lazar and Flying Saucers, which was the mm-hmm. what what really kicked off, I think this most recent PR tour, right? Corbell found Lazar, or Lazar found Corbell, and they decided they were going to do the movie. And I think that that's what kicked off this resurgence a couple years ago of them going out and telling the whole story again. So I was very excited to watch the movie because mm-hmm. having having followed the story closely for, you know, a couple of decades, I, w- I was interested to see what what was new. And the documentary really came off as uh, quite, I don't really know how to describe it. I, I, I felt like the documentary was more about Jeremy Corbell than it was about Bob Lazar. There's these like dramatic scenes where he's he's texting Bob and the, the camera is on Jeremy Corbell a lot during during the documentary it's 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 quite baffling because yeah it's, it's like the first i don't know 20 minutes or so is, is kind of uh, corbell and then there's this this weird scene where uh i think he's texting lazar and lazar is saying that there's federal agents like coming to his house or something like that uh i think this relates to the time when they care they raided his uh his lab for selling illegal firework ingredients but uh, that was pretty much just a, a recreation of, of that. But they, he passed it off as being uh, something that actually happened in in the film. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a lot of drama and not a lot of facts. And I think this is kind of a perhaps a defining characteristic of the whole Bob Lazar 
thing is that we got essentially a fairly superficial uh, exposition from from Lazar. You know, Bob Lazar is supposed to have uh, an MS in physics, which is a pretty advanced physics degree. And he, but the things that Lazar talks about are really kind of like superficial. He, he gives these very simplistic explanations of, of physics, which often don't really make any sense. And you don't really see Lazar getting into the details. He's kind of glossed over in a way that, that sounds good, but really doesn't have very much content. Uh, you know, kind of in the same way that uh, Jeremy Corbell's work uh, usually is is more sound and fury than something that actually signifies anything. And I think you know, if you look at the things that Lazar says, he says them very well. He's kind of a glib person. He has a quick answer and he, he, he kind of phrases things and uh, says things in a way that sound genuine. It sounds right. like he's genuinely recalling things and he, he does a good job of, of being skeptical of things uh, when you know, they talk about other people and their encounters or their claims or whatever. And he, he does a good job of being like the voice of reason there. But then he also has his own extreme claims. And then he, he goes on and says, well, I know people won't believe this. And actually, I prefer it if they wouldn't believe it. And so I think he, he's doing a really good job of making himself believable right. without really saying anything that you you could actually use to verify like you know not just his credentials but his his understanding of physics yeah he almost manages expectations that's one thing i've noticed like in addition to what you're saying about his ability even if he's not even if he's not telling the truth his ability to recall what his answer is for a particular question quite well yes yeah and uh he he's you know, he says he's like he doesn't like the spotlight and he gets very nervous and everything. But if you, you look back, he did a, a documentary with a guy called Gene Huff, who uh, who's been you know involved in the the whole thing from the start, and he he, he does a very good job of uh, of standing up in front of the camera and uh, explaining these things without any kind of self consciousness or whatever. So you know, he he doesn't really seem uh, like he's afraid of the spotlight. Uh, a lot of these people, they, they say they're afraid of, but they don't like the spotlight. Like, um, what's his name? The Fravor, David Fravor. Right. Yeah. You see, you see him like in the, the vice documentary saying, Oh yeah, I don't like this. Uh, the, the spotlight. I don't like people who, uh, seek out the spotlight. And then the next shot of him is him sitting in, the, in, in, on the top of a car going down this, uh, UFO, like Mardi Gras parade as the, the guest of honor. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, it, it sounds good to say that you, know, you don't want the spotlight. It it's kind of adds credence to your to your story. But yeah, the, I guess like that kind of gets into what is the motivation of people when they're doing these things. It's all it's all kind of unclear, and you know, at the time. And now we're talking about like over thirty years later. Yeah, you know, he first was interviewed by George Knapp in uh, I think nineteen eighty nine, when he he did his anonymous interviews. And then there's the whole cast of characters from back then. There's uh, there's there's him, uh, there's Lazar, there's George Knapp who did the interviews. There's there's John Lear who apparently introduced uh, um, Lazar to George Knapp. Uh, and then there's the, the other guy, uh, Gene Huff, 
who who was was there at the time. I think he was supposedly a a realtor at the time. And uh, John Lear tells this story about how they all met and. Uh, John Lear was quitting the UFO business and then Huff called him and said, can I have all of your files? And then yeah, Huff says, I'll come and do an appraisal of your house if you let me have all your UFO stuff. It sounds like it's a ridiculous story. Uh, so he comes and he, he does the appraisal of the house and the guy who's uh, holding the other end of the tape measure is Bob Lazar. And Bob Lazar overhears Gene Huff and, uh, and, and Lear talking about ufos and says oh that's kind of crazy i hold a q clearance and i would have heard about that and then they just keep talking apparently they convince him that this this stuff is real and then uh they all keep talking about it and eventually they persuade bob lazar or he like you know persuades himself that he's going to get back into the game and so he calls up edward teller who he happens to know from uh, from a long time ago uh, apparently and then gets a job reverse engineering flying saucers wasn't the story that Teller bumped into him somewhere and recognized him from the front of the paper in in Las Vegas because his Lazar had built a a car that was powered yeah. by a jet engine and Teller was standing around reading the newspaper or something and and Lazar walked up to him and said, "Hey, that's me on the front of the newspaper." Well, I think yeah, the way I, I heard it from you know probably is, there's various different sub- versions of it, but. Uh, Lazar said that Teller was giving a talk at Los right. Alamos. Right. And he met him there. And I, I, I think yeah, they might have mentioned talking about the the rocket car that, that he was uh, he was working on. Uh, and they they just talked. Um, and I I don't know what you know what what Teller actually thought of him at the time. And yeah, there's, there's I think there's a short clip of video of somebody asking uh, Teller about Lazar, and, Laz- and Teller just kind of refuses to talk about it because he seems like he's not interested in the the subject, or at least he, he claims not to be interested in the subject. So it's uh, you know it's, it's kind of again like you know, these things are lost in history because this would have been in what is eighty nine again, or no, would it be in eighty eight? Yeah, eighty eight. Uh, this happened. Uh, and you know it's 20 for 33 years ago it's yeah. quite ridiculous really well while we're and i want to try to take this in some kind of order which i imagine mm-hmm. we, you've got this organized in in an order and i have some questions but uh, while we're on the topic of just the motivation i, I I'm, I'm sure you watched the joe rogan podcast with with yeah. lazar and corbell and you know that's probably the thing that's most fresh in my mind. I've probably watched the whole thing start to finish probably 50 times, I would say, since it came out. <laughs> and because really, you know, I'm an analyst for a living. And so I, I like when I'm given three hours worth of, you know, deposition essentially to try to examine, uh, especially when it's something like this that I've been en- enamored with for years. Um, what I noticed about the timing in that interview and of course, he claims to have a migraine headache during that interview. And mm-hmm. and he stops and he the only time he doesn't answer questions directly and smoothly, like we were just talking about now, is when Rogan starts to get into the weeds a little bit about element 115. And he he asks him, I think, a, a like some kind of question that's off the beaten path a little bit, something that wasn't in his book, something that wasn't, you know, that I hadn't heard the answer from from him. Uh, prior, I don't know what it is right off the top of my head, but it's it's like a second tier question about the whole element 115 thing. 
and he just sits there quietly. And, you know, mm. then Corbell interjects, oh, you know, the world will forgive you for having a migraine, Bob, you know, and kind of, and, and, and Corbell interjects several times during that interview. Uh, notably, I think within the first 20 or 30 minutes, he's he's on it immediately saying, you know, Joe asks him a question and Corbell comes right out and says, you know, look, Bob doesn't need to be here. He gets so much shit from so many people. And, you know, he's just doing the whole world a favor here by being here today. And, you know, he, he doesn't want to do this, like like you said. And um, he doesn't care if anybody believes him, et cetera, et cetera. And, and from right there, you know, when, when I see those things, first off, when I see how eager he is to kind of jump in and defend him, it tells you about his his the lens he's looking at the whole story through. I mean, you know he's probably not being objective from the get-go. Uh, but yeah, I've, I found... Well, I think Corbell is looking at it from a, from a story point of view. And it's very much, uh, from his perspective, it's about communicating a certain story. And you see when he feels like it's starting to waver uh, from that or you know, there's something he wants to add to it, he, he's, he's very willing to, to leap in there uh, and make, make, you know, make a point seem to be important. Like there are things he brings up uh, that uh, you know, are, are in his film that you know, he feels are important because they're in his film. But you know, the, the things like the uh, Bob Lazar remembering the hand scanner, right? Yep. Uh, which is kind of evidence that was presented in the film quite dramatically. Uh, like he was, he was showing that uh, you know Lazar says there was this hand scanner, and uh, uh, Corbell makes makes the presentation as if this is like something no one's ever been able to verify before and no one's ever seen anything like it before and he's managed to finally track it down and it's this this big validation of uh, of Lazar having worked uh, at Los Alamos or wherever uh, uh, but you know it turns out this is something that was commonly known it was it's something that's in the movie uh, Close Encounters and it was in like Popular Mechanics and the like the early 70s or late 1960s is this really old technology that he, he would probably have been aware of. Uh, and not only that, he, we know that he actually went to Los Alamos. Right. Uh, you know, his name's in the phone book. So, you know, he was working as, as a, some kind of subcontractor uh, there, and it, it could quite well be something that, that he had seen and just kind of incorporated that into his story. But, you know, my point here is that uh, Lazar is telling a story and uh, yeah, some, a lot of people like that story. So he has a, he has an audience. Yeah, you 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 personally might not like it. I don't really like it, but a lot of people do like it, and they, they like the way he presents it. They they love the weaponize your curiosity thing because right. it uh, it kind of validates their own feelings about about what they are doing, uh, and so they they grasp onto things like that and they they enjoy them. Yeah, I find it fascinating, though. I mean, I find the the reason I'm not one way or the other on it is I just find I find the intricacies of the story so fascinating because there's so much to examine that mm-hmm. I I almost find it weird that it hasn't been so you know clearly debunked yet. And we'll talk about where those edges are in the story, where you know the things that maybe have been debunked. Um, but they're not, you know, they don't, they don't appear to be material enough. And, you know, there, there's, there's no, like, there's no definitive rock hard proof that he's, you know, lying 
on this, that, or the other on like the major issues. And so he's, he's able to kind of walk this line and tow this line around the fringes of parts of this story. But, uh, you know, it reminds me, just going back to the hand scanner, right? The hand scanner was the big piece of evidence in the documentary, as far mm-hmm. as I remember. That was the big reveal, like you said. And the claim was that this was a, uh, a scanner that you put your hands on that supposedly measured the length of the bones in your fingers. And that's how it identified you and ostensibly granted or denied you access to, I believe, S4, which is where he, he claimed that the scanner was from. And so the big reveal was that he, you know, Corbell had finally turned up this thing that Bob had claimed years ago was used, but everybody told him they didn't have the technology then, whatever. And it turns out here it is, and it's, you know, it's from the 80s, and it actually existed, and it's a real thing. And while that is, you know, a, appears to be relatively good proof that that hand scanner was in fact in use somewhere, either at Los Alamos or S4, even if he was at S4, he may have been there, but maybe he just wasn't working on flying saucers. It That's all it is. That's all it is, is evidence that that existed. And I always remember Bill Nye did this interview on CNN with a couple of guys that claimed they had spotted UFOs. And uh, this is years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And he's arguing with the guys... I think it was on Larry King's show. And one of the guys is saying, you know, well, you know, if if it wasn't an airplane, what was it? You know, as if that's some kind of direct evidence of being a UFO. And Bill Nye says to the guy, he says, listen, it's a huge stretch between saying you see something in the sky that you can't identify to get to its aliens in flying saucers. And it's the same thing right here. It is a huge stretch to say just because you found that a a hand scanner that was used in whatever, Los Alamos or in a government area, whatever, in the 80s, that doesn't validate a story about reverse engineering alien craft. It just validates the fact that here's this hand scanner. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think the people like look for these elements of truth in the story and any good uh, fake story would have as much truth in it as possible and you kind of bury the thing that you're you're, you're making up in things that are verifiable and true right so if you if you you know the someone's skeptical about the story you can even put things in that are obscure uh, but true that you know will will get verified later. So he you know he knows that th- this particular thing isn't particularly well known, and he he can uh, he can stick it in there, and it seems like it will get verified, or he can use fairly obscure things. Like I said, he, he's he's if he is lying, which uh, you know I think he's not telling the truth. He's quite good at what he does. So either somehow he's convinced himself that this was true or he's making it up but you know either way he's created uh, i think a kind of a reality in his mind that he can refer to uh and he he does this in a way that it comes across as if he's telling the truth the truth and i think you know if you want to tell a lie well you have to kind of half believe it uh so you can just speak from your own belief rather than be making things up all the time. Right. Or or I think what could be the scenario here is that part of the story is true. You know, for instance, we know he worked at Los Alamos National Lab in in some Mm -hmm. respect, 
right? So it's way easier to make up a lie if you tell 70% truth and then you stretch it 30%, you know, to get to 100% instead of just coming up with 100% bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So then the question is, did he work at S4, which is this uh, supposed like kind of underground built into the hillside site that no one has been able to find uh, up at Poos Lake? Uh, when you know, if you look at what he was doing by all the other evidence at the time, he was, I think, running a, a photo processing right. uh, lab yep. uh, 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 right down there. And yeah, he, yeah, he declared bankruptcy in, uh, uh, like later. And I think he, you know, he, he, that was his only occupation, but that was before. I can't remember. I get the timeline mixed up there. Well, uh, let's talk about what we can agree on our sure. facts. Uh, well, <laughs> that's kind of uh, we know everything that he said. So we we got to we got to buy like, go by what do we know about him? Like we know that he where he lived in uh, in Los Alamos. We know that he was listed in the phone book of Los Alamos National Lab. Uh, we know he was referred to in newspaper stories. At the time when they were talking about his his rocket car, as as a physicist, I think. Right. Yes. Um, we know a little bit about his education, uh, but not university level education. So junior college. Yes. Pierce Pierce right. Junior College. Right. Right. Uh, we know that. We uh, when when he was asked uh, about his education, he named people from supposedly Caltech or MIT who were actually people who were were at Pierce, uh, Pierce College, right? One uh, one so, professor specifically. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, William Duxler, mm-hmm. Doctor Duxler. Yeah, he called him Doctor Duxler, uh, and so it's yeah. Yes, it's kind of like when you actually when you put it like a hard uh, requirement on what do we actually know and verify. There's very very little because it's all stuff that he has said, and when you actually go into looking into his actual background, you just kind of find the the ordinary things about ordinary people and all the extraordinary ordinary stuff uh, that he claims isn't actually there and even some of the rather the boring stuff like you know which university he went to isn't verifiable so we can't say that we know it we can say that it, it it would appear that he didn't go to MIT right you know if you wouldn't even say what do we actually know just based on the general standards of evidence that we would apply to most people in terms of looking at their educational history I would say that we know he didn't go to Caltech and we know he didn't go to MIT because there are no records of it. Now, people would then say, well, obviously they've covered up the records, but you know, this, this is then this kind of uh, appeal to magic. It's like, if there's anything that doesn't match the story, you can then kind of wave your hands and say, well, that's just, uh, right. yeah, that's, that's just part of the story now, so there must be an explanation for it. Uh, and I think this is, this is something you see a lot in... Uh, conspiracy theories if, if if something comes up that's uh uh contradicts the story in some way then people were, are very willing to accept it as being part of some kind of cover-up of the actual story right without so, without proof of the cover-up 
Yeah, exactly. And he kind of gets away with this because people have this this such huge desire to believe what he is saying, and they have this this preconception that they think he's telling the truth. Uh, that when this objection comes up, that his education is not what he claimed it to be, then it's very very easy for people to accept this you know, quite outlandish. Uh, claim that uh, his his educational history would have been removed from the books at Caltech and MIT. Yeah, the, the the education claims have always been the sticking point for me because if he lied about his education, then it's evidence he's a liar, um, mm-hmm. and and then it becomes very easily then it becomes very easy to say, all right, well, what are, what are the boldest claims he's made? If he's lied about these relatively podunk claims, like where he got his degree, if that can be proven to be bullshit, then, you know, certainly the antimatter reactor is probably a lie as well. So when you talk about the, and this is what the uh, old UFO, ufologist Stanton Friedman talked about, and this was the kind of the how he shoehorned debunking Lazar uh, he did it from uh, the educational claims. He started there. When you look at what happened, so he was at a forum somewhere where he was answering questions, and you know people asked him about MIT. They asked him about Caltech, and aside from you know being able to say, "Well, they covered my shit up," somebody said to him, "Can you name one of your professors?" Can you name, mm-hmm. you know, people that went there with you? Because it's not just his records that are missing. It's anybody and everybody that went to school with him and any of his professors from any of these institutions. So, you know, when you do a master's degree in electronic technology from Caltech and you do a master's degree in physics from MIT, there have to be people, scores of people, you know, six degrees of people in every which direction that saw you out somewhere got a burrito with you, worked on the thesis with you, saw you in the library, were in one of your classes, were one of your professors, bumped into you in the hallway. You just don't attend, you know, two of these major schools for three, four years to work on advanced degrees and not, you know, even if the government wanted to come in and scrub the memories of everybody he ever bumped into there, that they, you they wouldn't be able to do it. It would be impossible because that that's how many connections and kind of points of reference you make. And I'm just, you know, I've been out of college for uh, almost 16 years now, okay? And I can name several of my professors from undergrad. I can name several of my professors. I can name where I used to go to eat. I could name where I used to live. I could name a hundred people off the top of my head that could validate that I was there. And the idea that when he was asked to name one of his professors and he named the guy from Pierce Junior College, which mm-hmm. is where he was, uh, where he has been confirmed to have gone and started a degree at junior college, really goes back to the, uh, it supports the hypothesis that he is supplementing nonsense with truth, right? Yeah, well, he's. Uh, I guess he was kind of forced to. Uh, in in some ways, I suppose that you could almost say that kind of helps his argument because he's he's trying to remember and he remembers the name of somebody and it wasn't it was at the wrong college, but he he should have known that if someone then followed that up, then they would have found out who this guy actually was, uh, and then they gave he gave another name. 
uh, of someone who no one was be able to tr- being able to track down from anywhere, but you know, wasn't at MIT, uh, wasn't at Caltech. Uh, but you, know, you, you say you can remember your college professors. I can't actually remember mine. But that was uh, when they asked him, Mick, that forum that he did where he gave that answer. That was in like the 80s or the 90s. Right. So he, yeah, yeah. he hadn't been out of university that long. No, I've been out of university like thirty years, so <laughs> it's uh, it's been yeah. You can't name one of your forgotten. professors. Uh, no, I cannot remember any of my professors. But I, I'm always terrible with names. So yeah, I, I I think what it gives him is some kind of plausible uh, not plausible deniability, but you know I think understandability, uh, in that people can accept that he might have forgotten the names of all his professors, since I've forgotten the names of all of my professors and lots of other people would have forgotten the names of their, their teachers. So a sufficient number of people will be able to accept that uh, as evidence. And, uh, you know, I think like with a lot of these kind of conspiracy theory type things, you, you kind of get locked in to being forced to believe things if you start going down the path of believing things. And so when you start believing everything that he is telling you and you start believing that you know, he got death threats and that uh, people tried to force him to, to stop talking and things like that, then you can start very easily believing that they might have tried to cover up his, uh, his educational background. Uh, it's kind of a, like this slippery slope. You end up down this, this, this Lazar rabbit hole where you end up believing everything he is telling you. Uh, because if you start doubting one thing, then you're going to start doubting other things. But then, you know, if you get to certain things where it's definitely false, then you have to start justifying those things in the context of uh, of your belief in what what he's been telling you. And he kind of introduces an element of that in in his story, which is a good move if you want more people to believe you. But he talks about how he thinks that they tried some kind of mind control things on him and they tried to uh, you know, give him some kind of hypnotic brainwashing type uh, situation and gave him various mind control drugs and things and he starts to doubt his own recollection of things or as he claims he does because he thinks that he went through this this process so now if he says something and it turns out to be false he can just say, oh, well, that was just the mind control that made me think that. So at that point, you get to be able to just pick and choose whatever right. you believe from everything he says. And people really want to believe the UFO stuff. They think that's amazing stuff. They want to believe that the, the government is hiding amazing technology uh, from us. And they want to believe that uh, we're on the verge of some kind of disclosure. And they want to believe that some uh, some army guy is having an alien uh, living in his basement in a, in some kind of force field container. Uh, these are all like great things that we want to believe. And if you have to kind of gloss over a few little things like some guy's educational background, then that's fine. And if a few of the the if a few of his memories don't line up, then yeah, that's fine too. Maybe he was a bit brain control and he uh, he's he's a little bit confused. But you know the big stuff is right there. But of course, there's no actual evidence of these things that we want to believe that he is saying. So on the one hand, we're picking and choosing what we want to believe, but we're doing it with all with the same thing. You know, it's all just stuff that he has told us. And we know there's a bunch of stuff he's told us that's false, uh, but there's a bunch of other stuff where we think, oh, that'd be great if that was true. But why are people believing it? They just believe it because 
he tells a good story and they want to believe. Yeah, I think the strongest piece of evidence that supports his story is that he can prove, I think it's provable that he worked at Los Alamos. He brought George Knapp there, right? At, at one point, if you listen to the forward of his book, George Knapp reads the forward to his book, uh, Dreamland, which another yeah. thing, like the documentary, I was very excited to get the book because I figured, all right, here's the down and dirty details. This is finally going to seal it for me. You know, this is going to explain. And most notably, what I looked for was the educational background and the timeline on the education, which was the big deal. You're sitting down to prepare a book to write your history, to write your memoirs. You have all the time in the world to at least come up with a fake story about it and get it down somewhere with a timeline that fits with all the other claims that you've made. You know, Mick, if you and I had a year to sit down and prepare to write a book, we could come up with a pretty decent timeline uh, of all this stuff. And we could, you know, really... uh, we We could add to the discussion things that would really make the story more credible. And when I listened to the book, I didn't get any of that. But for George Knapp at the beginning, talking about, hey, you know, back in the 80s when this whole thing started, I had Bob bring me to Los Alamos National Lab. And, yeah. you know, we went right in through the front door with cameras. The guard waved at him. He said, hi, Bob, how you doing? You know, this is before 9-11, so there was very lax security. And he walked me around the lab and showed me the, you know, the particle accelerator and all this other shit. And people there knew him. And, you know, between that and the news article, which described him as a physicist there, uh, I think it is likely that he worked as a physicist at Los Alamos. Yeah, well, uh, let me just read a paragraph from the start of uh, of that, which kind of talks to all these things. This is George Knapp uh, from from the, the introduction to Dreamland, uh, which is very directly talking about what we're saying. He says, uh, During the early stages of our investigation of Lazar's claims, the absence of school records was a major concern. If he would lie about where he went to college, might he also lie about working on flying saucers out of S4? Lazar told us that someone was erasing the paper trail of his life uh, to that point. We decided to focus on his claim about working as a physicist at Los Alamos National Lab. If he was really employed there, and if it could be proven that he worked on sensitive or classified projects, then it was at least plausible that he would have been hired to work on another sensitive defense-related project in the Nevada desert. It would also make sense that he must have had some level of education to make it into the door of Los Alamos given that no one is hired to work there without some sort of college degree. More importantly, it would mean he would be given a security clearance, which would have required a background check to verify his credentials. So uh, there I think Knapp is kind of trying to um, kind of wrap up an argument uh, that kind of either makes the credentials kind of given... That these credentials must exist, otherwise he wouldn't have gone to work at this lab. This right. is the argument, which is is nonsense. Yeah, you know, the the claim that he made, and it's I highlighted in the book when I when I read it, is that uh, yeah, no one is hired to work there without some sort of college degree. I mean, does that mean the guys who work in the cafeteria have to have a college degree? Does it mean all the electricians uh, have to have college degrees? Does it mean they they have to have an MS? Uh, yeah, if you're just doing something like I don't know, uh, servicing the photocopiers, you don't need a college degree to do that. And not everybody who works 
uh, Los Alamos is actually a scientist or uh, somebody involved in uh, in the actual research. Uh, and yeah, he would presumably have been given some sort of security clearance, and that would have required you know, maybe a background check to verify his credentials. But that doesn't mean he was claiming that. So he, he wasn't claiming he had an MS and using that to get into Los Alamos and that would have been verified. He claimed later that he had a, an MS in, in, in physics. We don't know what he actually did at Los Alamos, but we know he was kind of working as a, for this subcontractor uh, and uh, not directly uh, for, for the military. Uh, so I, th I think he's really tried to, Napa's tried to gloss over the issue there by saying that, you know, oh, they must have had, must have had credentials, otherwise why would he have been working there? But that argument doesn't actually hold up. However, it's, it's an argument that I think, like I was saying earlier, people who want to believe will just take that argument and say, oh yeah, that kind of proves it. We don't need to worry about his credentials because he was working at the lab. Therefore, he had the credentials. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, he, he wraps up a couple of arguments with evidence of something completely different. You know, that's like me saying, if I showed you I have a MD then I must be a practicing physician somewhere that lives in a mansion and drives a Porsche. I'd be like, no, yeah. it just means you're an MD. That's it. And it's the same with Lazar, right? It means his name in the phone book there and the fact that he was recognized there means that he worked there. It means that people there were familiar with him. It means, you know, and again, as you said earlier, he worked there as a contractor. It would also kind of beg the question of why he was listed as a physicist in that newspaper article, but mm -hmm. that very well could be the author of that article asking him what his title is and him saying physicist. Indeed, yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> I mean, why else would that happen? Like when you talk to somebody as a journalist, you ask them what their, their occupation is. You don't go and uh, look them up somewhere else and then write what their occupation is. You just take it to, as, 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 you know, they're going to be honest with you. So almost certainly that was Lazar just saying, that, yeah, I'm my physicist and I work at uh, Los Alamos, but which so, sounds great. So you agree, though, he worked at Los Alamos. You think it's it's the evidence is there that he worked at Los Alamos, definitely? Yeah, I think it's sufficient. I mean, the fact that he's listed in the phone book uh, seems like a, a reasonable amount of evidence. And uh, there's some other evidence of people saying that they remember seeing him there. But that's a little bit more dubious. But yeah, it's fine. He he. he he lived there in Los Alamos, in the in the, the city of Los Alamos, and uh, it shows up in that phone book. Seems fair enough, but we don't know what he actually did there. Did he work on like high-end particle accelerators, or was he just uh, someone who serviced photocopiers? I'm just, you know, I don't know what uh, what the various theories are. I'm just picking that one at random, but you know, he his background. His educational background obviously doesn't seem to indicate that he is a physicist, but he's perhaps a good technician. You know, what, what he did afterwards was kind of chemistry type stuff. He, he ran this chemist, chemistry supply company eventually years later, so he, he knows about science. And he was a good uh, tinkerer. He could make jet engines in his backyard. He was obviously a smart guy. So he has some some talent and can do some things. And the people work in Los Alamos for a variety of reasons, and a lot of those reasons are pretty mundane ones, like keeping the lights on. Right. And he does have a, he definitely has a rudimentary understanding of science and of physics. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But like, again, 
uh, in a way, it's a superficial, but you know, a bit a bit better than superficial, but not very deep. You know, when I talk to people with like PhDs in physics or master's degrees in physics, like I used to work with a guy back at Neversoft uh, who had a, a physics PhD, and the stuff they talk about is uh, is incomprehensible, and it's 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 not because like you know I'm I'm stupid. It's just because there's this domain of knowledge that is kind of out of the mainstream. But the stuff that he was talking about, the stuff that Lazar was talking about was very comprehensible. It was like the type of stuff you would read in popular science or the type of stuff that would appear in a science fiction movie like Close Encounters or the type of stuff that uh, was just in some kind of science fiction book. It was popular science stuff uh, talked about by someone with a bit of a technical background. So he could he could talk about, to a certain degree, how uh, gravity acts as a wave which you know it doesn't really act as a wave it kind of propagates as a wave it's actually a a field rather than a wave but uh he could talk about things in a way that sounded good and had a certain degree of of technical correctness like you can talk about you know protons and antimatter and uh, uh thermionic generators and uh uh gravity and do it in a way that sounds reasonable but it doesn't really sound like someone with an advanced degree in physics. Right. It sounds like someone who reads a lot of science fiction or someone who watches a lot of, uh, of science fiction movies who is just interested in, in that type of thing. Like he probably could give you uh, a good description of how his jet engine works, but not really get into the actual physics of it, the actual um, you know, equations uh, that 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 the complicated equations that real rocket scientists would use, because you know what he was doing was just a popular science or popular mechanics type jet engine. Uh, it wasn't really some kind of advanced physics type of thing. And you see this over and over again, with the things that he is doing is kind of science fiction level science. And so it sounds good to people who are UFO fans because UFO fans are usually science fiction fans and they've usually read like a bunch of stories, like a lot of a lot of science fiction is what they call is call hard sci-fi, uh, where they actually discuss the science. Uh, like, uh, about, let's see, the, the Ringworld saga, for example, famous science fiction uh, stuff that's got like lots of hard science in it, and but not difficult to understand science. And that's what we're seeing from Lazar, simple science. Yeah, and if you don't have a background in science at all, mm -hmm. everything he says sounds fantastic. Everything, yeah. everything yeah. he says sounds like technical mumbo jumbo. It's like being a you know a, a computer programmer, and and you, you have a guy that's a computer programmer and a guy that knows nothing about computers at all, and you get somebody that just comes out and starts going you know hey random access memory hard drives oh, yeah. flash drives usb ports and the guy that knows nothing about computers is like holy shit you know is this guy from the future this is incredible and and somebody that's a computer programmer knows that that's all very base level rudimentary you know with what the kid at best buy knows about before yeah. he sells you a computer i, I think most um most people I know a little bit of science or a little, a little bit of any kind of technology kind of forget just how completely blind the average person is about uh, about these these subjects, yeah, especially like computer programming. 
is, you know, I know a lot about computer programming. And when you try to explain it to people, they, they just have no idea. You may as well be talking Greek to them. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, but he, he doesn't even really get to that, that level. I think he, he says things in very simplistic ways. Like he's saying that, yeah, antimatter is being used as a fuel source. And that's just something you see in, in, in things like Star Trek or whatever. It's just like a standard staple of, of science fiction. There's this stuff called antimatter. You don't even need to understand what antimatter actually is. You just know that it's this stuff that's this really powerful fuel source. Uh, and then you can say antimatter is used uh, to create energy. And then we use that to to negate gravity and yeah people have an understanding vaguely of what gravity is it's what pulls you down and if you can you can bend gravity around it will push you up so yeah people can have a, have a very simplistic understanding of it but he never really gets into the actual details of it people will argue that antimatter reactor is brought up you know in science fiction because it is the most likely next iteration of power versus the other way around which is what you're putting which is hey he's kind of drawing from uh, sci-fi, right? People are going to say, well, you know, that's the next iterator. It's like Element 115, right? Yeah, we but... knew that there was an Element 115 before there was an Element 115, yet he gets this credit for claiming that there was an Element 115, right? Yeah. And it, it doesn't really make any difference. So, like, if it's actually a, a, a plausible thing, because it's this thing that is also, you know, really, really strongly used in popular culture uh, of, of being this, this uh, you know, this, this, this this fuel that people use, you know, in Star Trek, they use dilithium crystals, which I think is something completely different. But, uh, but then the idea of a warp drive, uh, which is essentially what, what he's describing, something that warps space, you know, that's just, just a staple of science fiction. It's not anything particularly uh, amazing. It'd be amazing if it was true, but it's not like anything that would require a large amount of creativity to come up with. It's just a standard, um, thing that exists in popular culture and then the other things he talks about like the descriptions of the aliens uh which which he claims to have read about in these these briefing documents are also standard things from popular culture you know i kind of started with that little timeline uh that that, that i i said and I, I i included close encounters you look at the alien in Close Encounters at the end of the movie when he comes out of the spaceship and it's it's like your classic grey alien. It's actually grey and it's got these big big black eyes, tiny nose, like hidden ears and a little slit for a mouth and it's it's about three or four feet high. And this is the same type of thing that was was um, that he described and the same type of thing that we, we see in many other aliens. But then you have another you have another chicken or the egg type oh, yeah, argument yeah. there, right? Which is yeah, did, did thing, close like... encounters characterize <laughs> aliens like that because somebody saw them and gave that description and that was the de facto description? Yeah. Or is that the image that people that claim to have seen aliens after that drew upon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well it's we know that when an idea enters popular culture, people start seeing that thing. This is just kind of a, a standard thing that happens uh if people go out looking for things and thinking that they are seeing things they start seeing those things if uh as is probably the case alien abductions are almost entirely just people having dreams or nightmares or uh, sleep paralysis type situations hallucinations uh then they're going to see what they kind of expect to see they're going to have dreams about aliens 
in the same way that you have you know, dreams about uh, you know dragons or unicorns. If you have an idea that something exists and it comes into your dream, it's going to look like the description of things that you you've heard about. It's going to look like the things that you saw in the movies. Uh, so, you know, is one thing creating the other? It's, it's. Um, I guess you could you could probably analyze it from a certain level of uh, how deeply enmeshed was it in popular culture before people actually gave these descriptions. And in Bob Lazar's case, it was very very deeply enmeshed in popular culture. This was basically him just repeating things that came from the Barney and Betty Hill abduction case in uh, in 1961. Uh, the name of the star system was the same. And of course, you know, again, yeah, that is that more evidence that it's the same star system or is it just evidence of something being repeated right. through popular culture? But the the latter seems more likely to me. You know, the idea that there actually are aliens coming from Zeta Reticula and they are abducting people in the middle of the night and uh, they they lost nine of their flying saucers uh, and let some of them their own being their themselves be captured and held held captive and entered into negotiations with the US government or are a few people just making shit up right right let's talk about the uh, polygraph because mm. you know since we're jumping around with no basis in uh, <laughs> in chronological order you know people are always going to bring that up they're going to say well Lazar passed a polygraph test mm -hmm. Uh, back, I think it was in the 80s, right? In the late 80s, he took the polygraph. He was a young kid. I remember right. watching him. And uh, I don't know if you've looked into that at all, have you? Not really, but like polygraph tests, as everybody knows, are not reliable. And Lazar, as we do know, is a, a smart guy. Right. Uh, who would have been able to look up how to fool a polygraph test. Right, and he took several, too. He took, I think... I, he either took two or three. I don't remember. He took multiple polygraph tests. Here it is. Uh, this isn't it. But uh, he did take multiple polygraph tests. And one of them, I think, came back inconclusive. And mm -hmm. I think the other one came back a pass. And that would be indicative of somebody, you know, trying to fool a polygraph. And, and if you don't know about that, you can listen. I did a podcast with this guy, Doug Williams, who uh, is out there. He's got a major beef with polygraph examiners and polygraph tests. He uh, he used to be a polygraph examiner, I think, for police department. I can't remember his story, but it was an awesome podcast because he just runs through the entire the entire uh, kit and caboodle about why they are completely unreliable and yeah. how ridiculous the the questionings are, the line of questionings and the intimidation tactics that are used, and how quite easy they are to fool if you know how to fool them. And so yeah. if I see somebody that's taken multiple tests and one of them has come back inconclusive, which essentially means that the examiner can't, you know, can't get a control and can't get uh, can't get a way to, you know, judge accurate answers based on that control. Either the control is skewed or or the answers are skewed uh, and, and another one comes back a pass that certainly could be indicative of somebody trying to manipulate the exam. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Polygraph tests really aren't used as a way of determining truth. Uh, that's, that's kind of like how they're presented, but you know, they're generally uh, not admissible as like absolute evidence in court. And they use more as a, a kind of um, uh, an interrogation technique, as a way of, of, of revealing evidence of, and uh, leads that can be followed up. Uh, but you know, people, people like to think of them as being these, these 
these things that mean somebody. Like if someone uh, agrees to take a polygraph test and then uh, passes or fails, you think it actually means something. I remember back when I was uh, debunking chemtrails like 10 years ago, a guy uh, who th thought I was being paid for by the CIA said, like, I should take a polygraph test. And he said he would pay, he, he would actually pay uh, for me to take it. And I, I foolishly, like, agreed to do this at first because uh, I thought, oh, I'll just take a polygraph test. That would be interesting, see what happens. Then I thought, like, you know, what happens if, if I fail this polygraph test or if it comes back inconclusive? <laughs> People are going to think Because that might happen. Because yeah, I, I'd imagine, like, you know, you go into these polygraph things and you're, you're all nervous and you don't know what's going on. And, like, you, uh, like, you know, my, I, I would obviously want to go in there and just tell the truth. You know, I'm not paid for not The CIA does not pay me anything. But you could see it going wrong. You could see it actually, like, giving you the, the actual false results. And so I, I then declined to take the test and of course that's right that's in evidence minds, of was absolute the proof that, uh, <laughs> that uh, i was in fact paid for by the cia so right that's nothing ever came of it really but yeah it's it's not not really very definitive when when that when that happens and i really wouldn't read anything to it one way or the other because there's so many variables and you don't really know like what's the quality of the, the polygraph examiner and how good is this person at lying and yeah do, right. perhaps he's the type of person who believes his own lies yeah, it, it, he's been saying the same story for such a long time perhaps if you keep telling the story for years then it doesn't feel like lying and your body doesn't react when you, you tell the story again you're just telling a story yeah George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, going forward from uh, Los Alamos, then there's then there's S4, right? So let's, let's talk about what, if anything, we can confirm about him being at S4. And, you know, the story goes that once he's out there and he's interviewed and he fills out his paperwork that he could be at home on a random day at his house in Las Vegas and the phone would ring and they would say to him over the phone, Bob, it's now 1130. We expect you to be at McCarran uh, Airport at uh, 12 o'clock and then they would hang up and his job as a somebody that worked at S4 Area 51 was to then drop whatever he was doing like Batman, you know, like you get like you got a phone, uh, you got a call on the the bat signal. And he would have to drop whatever he was doing, get to La uh, Las Vegas Airport, hop on the Janet flights, which are you know very well known flights yeah. that do in fact have their own terminal at the airport and run back and forth their uh, government uh, flights that run back and forth. I guess ostensibly to Area Fifty One. And that he would get out there and he would land and then he would take a bus with blacked out windows and then he would wind up, uh, you know, going into S4 and that's where he worked. And right from the get-go when I heard that story, I'm like, that sounds kind of stupid, you know? <laughs> I mean, it just does. It sounds like if you were making up a story, yeah. that that's what you would say. Like, well, I would just receive mysterious phone calls and I would have to just drop what I was doing. And what he claimed to be doing there which was essentially that you know that the government had these flying saucers there and his job was to figure out how they worked basically and they had had them mm -hmm. for for decades that is a very i don't know it just doesn't come off like something where 
you would need to drop everything and go there at midnight. I mean, I feel yeah, like you would just work on that nine to five yeah, Monday through exactly. Friday. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think like the the story doesn't really make any sense. And I think one of the key things about why it doesn't make sense is is why would they hire him to do this? You know, what qualifications does he actually have? Uh, and he actually, in an interview I was reading, uh, listening to yesterday, he kind of admits that's a bit bemusing as well. And he kind of describes this kind of interview process he went through and says they were asking him about his his hobby type experimentation, like his, his little right. uh, hobby jet engine that he, that he was building. And it doesn't really seem to make any sense that they would actually need a person like him because he doesn't really seem to have any skills that would translate to uh, flying saucers that use some kind of uh, space warp technology and anti-gravity uh, antimatter. You know, they don't use jet engines. So the his experience with you know, making a jet engine and strapping it to a car or a bicycle uh, isn't really relevant. And the the what he claims to have been doing before is in, in actual in Los Alamos is a bit vague. And he hadn't been doing it for six years, I think. Like he, he actually left Los Alamos right. uh, like in the early 80s and was running a business as a, pho a photography developer in developing people's photographs, a photo lab. So they're going to take a guy who makes jet engines, who runs a photo lab, and they have him come in and analyze uh, flying saucers. You know, it doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't really add up. Yeah, I guess the link there is, I or the perceived link maybe that they're trying to make is propulsion, right? Hey, I worked on this jet engine that I strapped to my car at some point. Yeah. And now, yeah, you know, you and I think what he, what he had said, yeah, I think what he had said in previous interviews was that they were looking for kind of a cowboy, you know, they were looking, yeah. they were looking for a wild card when it came to propulsion because they got these fucking crafts and they got no clue how they work. And, you know, they're getting but, from point A to point B. So they just brought me in as, as the wild card. I mean, that, that, that's, I think that makes sense if you, you know, nothing about propulsion, but these are two radically different methods of locomotion that have no connection whatsoever to each other. You know, one is warping the very fabric of time and space itself, <laughs> and the other is just like burning uh, propane and shooting it out the back of a, a big tube. It's it's completely uh, an irrelevant connection. Like it kind of perhaps sounds like there might be something, but th th there really isn't. You know, you want someone who who's who's into I don't know the more esoteric fields like the actual physics uh, behind uh, behind uh, uh, gravity fields and whatnot. But yeah, just a jet engine is is nothing, right. and there was there's no reason why that would have been uh, uh, something that he would have been good at doing. And, and what did he actually do at S four? What are right. the actual tests that he did? What was the actual physics that he worked on? You know, he gives these stories about things that he did, but they're, they're just banal little fun little stories about right. how he turned on the thing and threw a golf ball at it and it bounced off the ceiling. There's really nothing about the actual science. Yeah, no, they're they're all little anecdotal 
kind of stories, like you said, like, oh, he walked through it and, you know, everything was made out of the same material. And he even he even yeah. peeked his head down into the bottom level to get a look at the uh, at the uh, gravity warp, uh, whatever the hell the things are called, you know. Uh, and, and, and so he's got all these little anecdotal stories, like you said, about the golf ball, right? Hey, all right, the reactor was uh, like shaped like half a basketball, and I threw a golf ball at it, and it and it bounced right off. You know, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I said to Barry, my work partner, that's crazy. And he said, that's crazy, too. And it's like, all right, well, what did you do for the other seven hours of that work shift that you were there, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what were you writing down? What notebooks did you use? What computer system did you use? What data were you logging? You know, and there's none of that. And he, he, I yeah. think he only claims to have worked there for a couple of months. But he would be, you know, ostensibly would be able to recall a significant amount of that, right? Yeah, I mean, what actual tests were being done? I mean, throwing a golf ball at it. I mean, why the fuck would you throw a golf ball at it? <laughs> it's, it's like you've got the most amazing thing out of, in human history right there in your lab. And you're like, what are you doing? Hitting it with a hammer and throwing golf balls at it? Right. This is the science that they're doing? No, you you. I mean, you would be having that like uh, 500 feet away and measuring it with uh, you know, some kind of remote instruments at first and then gradually getting closer and doing little things and then trying to perturb it very, very slightly and making all these vast amounts of measurements of the, the changes right. in the field. Right. You wouldn't be throwing golf balls at it. Right, exactly. <sighs> and, and his whole... His whole recollections of S4 are littered with a lot of these anecdotal little, I don't even know what you call them. They're like little, um, they're just like little nuggets that people can kind of sink their teeth into. Like when he says, you know, the craft, you know, that they had put a U.S. flag decal on on the sport model craft, which was supposedly the craft he was working on. Uh, Or, you know, he saw the poster. Of, of the of the sport model craft on the wall that said we're here underneath it okay you know but there's a lot of these little anecdotes but there isn't really any detail it's just like the educational background right there's yeah. we have a 50,000 foot bird's eye view but we don't really have anything else it's a story he's telling a story and it, it's like you know it's like telling a science fiction level story about what's happened if if someone was to write a write a popular book which essentially is what you know he did with he was writing dreamland uh it's just that simplistic understandable story but he wanted people to believe him (laughs) i guess that's the other thing he claims he doesn't want people to believe him because it would be more convenient if if they they don't believe him which is kind of a get out of jail free card it means that he can be just be like oh yeah yeah i don't really want to like bother like telling my story in, in sufficient detail that people will believe me, even though he wrote a whole book about it. He, he, he should be able to um, explain some of the science behind what went on, beyond these these simplistic uh, popular mechanics type uh, explanations. Like, you know, his, his, his explanation of how it works is so ludicrously simple and nonsensical that it, it just reads like, like bad science fiction really like he's he's saying that there's this this element 115 that you bombard with protons and it creates antimatter and that antimatter creates heat and then there's a hundred percent efficient thermionic generator that takes that heat and converts it 100 percent into electricity and then that electricity somehow generates gravity because there's so much electricity it makes gravity and then there's this gravity waveguides that shape the gravity into this kind of heart-shaped 
toroidal thing around the craft and that warps space sufficiently so that the craft moves and flies around. I mean, it's just... It's it's just like it's something he's read in a comic. <laughs> well, it, and there's just no evidence. Yeah. There's just... There's, there's literally no evidence other than very circumstantial fringe stuff like the hand scanner. And, you know, he has a... Uh, he was able, I think, to produce a pay stub from the United States Navy. I don't know if did you ever see that? Yes, in fact, I was looking at it's right in front of me. Yeah, it's uh, it's got like this number that he has on his uh, like E six seven two two M A J. Right, M A J is like Majestic twelve, I guess, which is the uh, or the Majestic security clearance. Well, what do you make of that? Uh. Well, I mean, it could be fake. <laughs> I mean, all it is is a standard uh, W-2 form with stuff typed on it. Right. right. And that's all it is. So what is there to indicate that it's not fake? I yeah, mean, I don't know. There's, there's nothing. I mean, did he, did he, does he have his tax returns that also include this, this thing? Yeah. It's, uh, and I don't know. Is, does it, if he actually got this, uh, whatever it was, $958 from the United States Department of Naval Intelligence, does it mean anything? But, you know, my, my first bet here, you know, I, I like to list my hypotheses in order of likelihood. And I think the most likely thing here is that this is just simply a fake thing that somebody has typed up, probably him, because there's nothing at all official on it. All it is is a piece of paper, which could have been photocopied, and some typewritten letters. Yeah, either that or he did receive a W-2 for $958, which is not a very material amount of money, first off. I mean, nope. it certainly doesn't seem to me commensurate with the type of money a scientist would make that is working on the forefront of technology as we know it, but... Uh, or it could be, you know, that he was working as a uh, a janitor for the United. It, you know, I think it says United States Naval Intelligence or something. What's the actual listed uh, employer on there? The United States Department of Naval Intelligence, Washington D.C. Right, right. And so that that could that could be anything. It could be from anything. But you know, it's not proof that he didn't work there, and it's not proof that he did work there. It, it, you know, it, it doesn't say S four. It doesn't. It's not signed by the president. Well, it's, uh Go You've got to think like, yeah. You know, if he if he's making all these claims uh, that he worked there, then either he's lying or he did work there. So he's either lying or telling the truth. One of those two things. So uh, if he did work there, then this is evidence that supports that. If he did not, it is a, it is not. It's just another lie. So it's really no different from his verbal lies. It's just a written down lie. So the fact that he comes up with a document that supports him isn't doesn't actually add anything because there's no way of verifying this document and it came from him. So there's no it it there's it, it seems superficially like it's it's a good thing for his case, but it's no different to a verbal lie. It's just a written down lie. So what do you make of him being able to conceptualize uh, Element One Hundred and Fifteen before hmm. it would had been technically discovered? 
Yeah, well, this is this is like you know the famous thing, but Element One Fifteen at the time was uh, no one had ever managed to synthesize Element One Fifteen, uh, and you know just very simply with the science, uh, the periodic table of elements lists the elements, and they all have a number, and it starts with the simplest <laughs> number, number one, which is hydrogen, and number two, which is helium, and then it goes on from there, and they get more complicated, and the the elements towards the start were things that were around at the start of the universe, and the elements toward the end are older things that form when stars collapse and things like that. And we've discovered a bunch of them, and some of them occur naturally, and some of them we have to make because they don't occur naturally, at least on Earth. And there were gaps in the table, and there were spaces at the end where they thought that there were going to be elements. And we were just gradually discovering these elements. Like every every year or so, we discover a new one. Like I think originally when they did the table, it only went up to like 99 or something. So and they started discovering these these ones uh, later and later. So we knew we were going to discover elements. And there was an article, I believe, in Scientific American, uh, I think the year before he started talking about it, which described uh, element 115 as being a potential candidate for a stable element. And there was really, if he, if he wanted to come up with an exotic element that could be used as a fuel, it just seemed like a good pick. One one fifteen. He might have he might have picked one fourteen or one one sixteen, but he picked one one fifteen. Uh, it didn't really make any difference either way, and it wasn't at all surprising that uh, it was this then discovered later on. And it wasn't discovered in the way he described it. Of course, yeah, you know, he described it as being a stable element that you could actually you know kind of move around, uh, but. The 115 that we've we've synthesized up till now has been unstable, and yeah, you know, it's not clear if it can actually be stable. So he didn't really predict anything that wasn't already existing in popular science and in probably in science fiction, but certainly in popular science. Yeah, and if you remember, I mean, 2001, I graduated high school, so I remember being in chemistry class, and I was in remedial chemistry, but but I was in chemistry class nonetheless in 98, 99, 2000, and I remember seeing Unun Pentium on the, on the periodic table, which was one of the right. placeholders for yeah. 115 prior to us uh, dis, you know, synthesizing it, I think, in 2003 when they synthesized it for the first time officially. I mean, it doesn't explain... Um, it d- doesn't really explain why he said that, but it 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 adds to your case that you know we kind of knew these things were out there. It was just a matter of time until we officially synthesized them or officially were able to. It's like how did we know that the uh, the Higgs boson was out there, right? And and you know we had this spot for it in the standard model, mm-hmm. and then we just plugged it in once we found it. I mean, we just it, it was through deductive reasoning became clear that it was there. And so, yeah, but, but but what's interesting is you're saying there was an article prior to him even bringing it up that suggested it existed. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I'm looking at it now. It's uh, Scientific American in May 1989, um, and he didn't start talking about this stuff until actually around that time, May 1989. Uh, interesting. Which, when his first interviews with George Knapp were. 
What's and so what's the date could, on the uh, on the Scientific American article? It says uh, May nineteen eighty nine, volume two sixty issue five. All right. So, but actually, they they always put the so it, it's theoretically could have came out in April, right? Don't they? It would have come. It would have come out before May, I think. Right. So they, and they would have come out in March. And Lazar's no, April, first yeah. interview was May fifteenth. 1989 so how about that so so scientific american publishes in april about element 115 and 30 to 45 days later lazar gives his first interview and he brings up element 115 yeah yeah it's it's an article it's like a a variety of the ways of synthesizing uh elements in that that region uh and yeah so it was it was right right there (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly it, interesting. If if you look at uh, there's there's various pictures of Bob Lazar, and in one one picture he has a periodic table of elements in his background, and you can see there it's an older uh, periodic table, and there's there's a space where element one fifteen would be, and and a few others. I think it only goes up to like one one twelve or something on on his thing, but you can see on this periodic table of elements that's behind him in his shop, there's a little note. It's you know, printed on the uh, on the actual thing, which probably says something like, you know, this region has uh, is where elements, you know, one one eleven through one eighteen would be. Yeah, I remember reading uh, that it, in textbooks back in the day. Yeah, because people people knew that the, you know, the, the the periodic table of elements isn't just like a, a pretty way of arranging things. It's arranged uh, in a way that relates to the physical structure uh, of of the the protons and the neutrons and the electron shells, uh, and we know that there are, are, are areas where there are more likely going to be more things discovered just because it's an extension of, uh, of, of, of the elements. Just by having more uh, elemental particles, protons and neutrons, gets you new elements. So it, it's not a complicated thing. Yeah, very interesting. And so then from there, you know, again, he claims to start back engineering this craft uh, at S4. And you know what? One of the interesting parts of the story I always thought was he claimed that, that at one point the bay doors were open and he could see all nine craft. Did, did you ever hear that yeah. claim? I did, yeah. So someone brought it up on my site actually a while ago and we, we were doing an analysis of what that would actually look like. Uh, but Did you ever see yeah. him draw it? Did you ever see the, uh, the the lecture he gave where he drew on a whiteboard exactly how, how the doors opened between the, the bay areas? I did. I was actually went to look at that that video, and it got taken down. I think it was him. Uh, it was at a uh, I think I remember it was like ninety something uh, UFO conference that he was at, and he was giving he was standing up describing this. But yeah, it was like there was this just long line of of hangars, and each one had a different flying saucer in, and there were these doors connecting the hangars, and they were all open, so you could see all the flying saucers at the same time. Yeah, but that never made sense to me the way that he drew it. The way that he drew it was in essence if you imagine walking into a garage from from say you're walking into a garage from the back of a garage and you're facing out you know the front of a house so the garage door mm-hmm. the garage door is in front of you and you're standing in the back of a garage facing forward at the garage door right ostensibly that would be the bay door on the side of the mountain we'll say right and if you look to your right on that garage door wall there, what what he drew was a 
picture of a door that looks like a normal door, like you would walk through in any normal building, yeah. or perhaps like you probably already have in your garage now that leads into the house, right? And what I believe he claimed in that video was that all of those doors going nine garages down were open. So in essence, you had a normal-sized human door open and that there were nine other doors open all the way down so you could see all the way through the backs of all the other garages, essentially. If you, if you were in the back of the garage, you were looking right down the whole line of garages. That would not give you the visibility to identify one, let alone all nine of the crafts in there. I, I, I have to kind of disagree with you there because this is something I remember we did actually look at on Metabunk and we did like awesome. a kind of a recreation of it. Uh, and there's a thread which is called Debunking Bob Lazar's Drawing of S4 Hangers, which uh, is wait, was a while ago, back in 2018. I think this was actually one <laughs> of the first times that I really heard about Bob Lazar. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with him at all before this, this thing came up. But uh, it's... If the doors are lined up, then you would be able to actually see something of what's in each. Yeah, but you uh, wouldn't. Hanger. You wouldn't be able to identify all nine of you them, which is what he claims he does. You wouldn't be able to does. see very much, but you can. If if you um, you can, you'd be able to see like the end of each one. It's like if you imagine a car in each one, you'd be able to see like the hood and the uh, the headlights uh, and the you know, the front bumper. That, that, that's that's not necessarily true, though. That's not necessarily true. I mean, think about the shape of a flying saucer, right? Ostensibly. Yeah. A flying saucer gets wider the further up from the ground you get. So it's possible right. that you one, wouldn't be able to see the entire thing. Right. And in one of these hangers, he oh, here's the picture right here. Okay. So it's on Metabunk. And the thread is called, if you want to look it up, it's called Debunking Bob Lazar's Drawing of S4 Hangers. And it's on Metabunk.org. So if you Google Metabunk, M E T A B U N K, Metabunk.org, and then Google that, it comes right up. So if you look in this drawing, and he even claims, you know, one of the oh, one of the other spacecrafts looks like a jello mold. One of the other crafts yeah. was flat and laying sideways up against the wall and had yeah. you know, something had been blown through it or it had been shot down and it looked as though something had been shot down. Okay, I'll give you one or two iterations down, but you're not gonna be able to see, identify, and I mean there is no way you could look nine doors down and confirm that what no, you're I looking what at you five, six, seven, eight, nine doors down is a craft, is anything, or that anything's going on. It's a shame that the video has been deleted. You can see it's been deleted in the thread there. But uh, like if you look at the image, yeah, you got the, the screenshot, right? The screenshot that's right there. It just shows him he's drawing like four of the hangers. But you can tell, you know, the way he's drawing it is kind of like from this god's eye view. Like he's drawing it as if he can see everything right. uh, from above. Like it's all open. It's like a big model that is looking down on. So it's kind. It's kind of interesting that because it kind of suggests that he's just imagining this layout in his mind, right? And not imagining what it would look like through these doors. So he's imagined these nine hangers in a row with these nine different flying saucers in it. So obviously he knows what they all look like in his head, right? And then he claims he can see them. Hmm. Now, now you have to go back and listen to the claims that he's made about being able to identify the craft in each of these hangers because he says he can see them. That's how he knows yeah. that there were nine. He didn't say there's nine hangers. He said there were nine crafts. And, and you and I both know that if you walked in 
and look to the right and look through nine normal-sized doors at ostensibly the way he draws it here, they're at the back of the hangar on each hangar. You cannot, you absolutely cannot, no matter what angle you try to cut, you cannot make out what's going on. I would probably say maybe maybe past the third door, I would say, but there's no way. I mean, you may not even be able to make make the third one. There's no way three through nine clearly come through. Well, if you if you scroll down though, uh, there's actually a different set of drawings that uh, he apparently did, no, let's uh, see. and backs to someone. Go down to like just the second post. Post, uh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Kind of... So look, you, you've already gone into this, have you? Yeah. So he, he in these images, it's not just like the little garage door, like side garage door in each one. There is one side garage door in the first hangar. Then between each subsequent hangers, he's drawn a larger sliding door. Right. So that would make more sense because then you get to see a lot more of the craft. Even but the, you know, then the question is, did he come up with these larger doors later or is this something he came up with earlier? Did he draw this photo here in the thread where you've kind of put the red line over uh his line of sight yeah did he draw I, I did that red line so the this this someone else posted it and said that it was supposedly drawn by lazar and there's an annotation that says following are a few sketches bob facts over the years to jfi uh i don't know sure who jfi is in order to help illustrate the hardware and events of sector four on the ls air force range so but yeah, i mean no the dates. first the first video is showing him drawing mm-hmm. doors it's not showing yeah. those sliding doors yeah yeah so if you know if that's what he he remembers then obviously like it's 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 incorrect right, right. <laughs> because he, he couldn't have seen those things and the fact that he's describing them so accurately makes it seem like he's just making it up and he's just yeah. kind of imagining the whole the whole and, layout in his head and even if you look through this line of sight on the second drawing that you've drawn so again the thread is on Metabunk, which is Mick's website, and it's called Debunking Bob Lazar's Drawing of S4 Hangers. Even if you look through the second set here, the first off, if he did drew this, he drew four identical crafts, which I'm not sure you would do if you didn't yeah. see four identical crafts. That's number one. That stands at odds with this story. Number two is even if the other hangers did have these big sliding doors between them, you're still not going to be able to see nine down you may be able to see four but you know it's gonna be like looking down a uh, a row of cars parked in a parking lot if you look down a row of cars parked in a parking lot you can't tell what every single car is because they're all blocking each other's line of sight yeah and he he spent quite a lot of time in putting a lot of detail into this uh this diagram like he even drew the three individual stalls in the bathroom and yet he just put like two circles for each flying saucer <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it doesn't add up. <laughs> but what what really doesn't add up is so this is the George Knapp interview at the UFO conference in 2015 where mm-hmm. he is Bob Lazar is physically at a whiteboard drawing the doors that we talked about. And this yeah. photo very clearly shows normal human size walk through doors which is interesting because that actually contrasts with the second diagram which shows that these doors are on uh, the back side of the hangar uh which he may just be omitting for the purposes of this but but yeah his drawing 
him standing here at the whiteboard stands at very stark odds with his claims, I think. It's also interesting in the first thing. I mean, we're talking about drawings here, which probably isn't that good for your podcast audience. But this, the first drawing he does shows the roof sloping down from one side to the other. Right. Which makes no sense whatsoever. Now, that, I think, comes from um, earlier drawings that he or someone else did of the doors of the supposed S4 hangars, which are shown as being sloping doors that kind of sit in the, in the hillside. Right. But when you take that slope, you don't make the entire interior of the hangar be this like 30 degree slope down to nothing at one side. Because that you know, that flying saucer that he has in there would probably be banging against be sticking out, right? the, the roof. Yeah. So, <laughs> and especially if they were actually of the size that he drew in the second diagram. So it, it makes no sense. It's again, it's as if he's, he's doing this kind of God's eye view uh, of elements of his story rather than an actual accurate uh, recreation from memory. Yeah, and I'll put a, I put a link to metabunk.org and that thread in the podcast description. So you can go right into the podcast description and click right through to the to the thread to understand what we were just talking about there for the last couple of minutes. But but yeah, I mean, that's something that I had never even explored really, but for thinking it couldn't happen. And now seeing this thread, I'm thinking it really couldn't happen. Hmm. But Yeah, well, I, I kind of thought it kind of could, but like no, when you when you talk about it like that with the... Uh... You know, especially the first diagram makes no sense whatsoever. Well, in the second one, they both show kind of uh, very. Um, they show the front of the of the bays all in line, which might be the case. But if it was built into the side of a mountain, you would yeah. you might you might think that it might not be that way. Unless... It's also very very centered around him as well, isn't it? He's got this primo lab like right next to all these flying saucers. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And there's, uh, you know, what else is, is going on there? He's he's the one guy right next to everything. And a three-stall bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> specifically. And uh, some other stuff. I can't see what the other, other stuff is in the, the diagram. But What do you make of his claims? Um, you know, when he starts talking about the other people that he worked with there, he always brings up this name, Dennis Mariani, who was supposedly his boss, which I always thought was interesting because he originally had identified himself as Dennis in his uh, oh, yeah. first anonymous interview with George Knapp. So th- the Dennis name comes back up and he says, oh, I was just using the name of my boss because I was I was scared. But he always uses Dennis Mariani's full name, which to me sounds like he's saying his full name to say it for credibility purposes. My boss's name, Dennis Mariani. It was always me and Dennis Mariani. Kind of this military-looking guy, Dennis Mariani. He always says his full name. But Barry, his lab partner that he worked with, I don't think has a last name. And, (laughs) And anytime Rogan or anybody else asks him about you know, hey, did you ever ask about this? Like, how the fuck did you find this stuff from Zeta Reticuli? Oh, we didn't ask questions. The only person I was allowed to talk to was Barry, my lab partner, and that was it. The way that Lazar describes it, he was completely sequestered there, right? And everybody else had their own team, and they were all working on different aspects of, you know, the, these different crafts, but they weren't allowed to corroborate, uh, collaborate, and they weren't allowed to share evidence. They weren't allowed to share things. I guess they all had to kind of give whatever they found up to the higher level and uh, and then they would kind of make sense of it up there. But what, what, did, what did you think about his claims about, you know, the names, his boss, his lab partner? Did you ever look into that? 
No, but I think again, like uh, the way you just describe it there does really resonate with the idea of uh, making up a story and then sticking with the story. Because uh, it it seems like you know the repetition of the name is is something that you, when you read a book they always describe people in a certain way and then that's how you think of them. Uh, but that, that isn't really like you know, the, the real life thing. You, you, you wouldn't be calling uh, somebody Dennis Bariani every second of the day. You would just call him Dennis. Right. Uh, there's, there's no need to use his full name. It's not like I, there were ten Dennises there. Um, in the same way, he, he refers to him as Barry. So I think that's kind of another clue, uh, really. Uh, and in fact, you know, we we can't find this guy, and you can't ask him about it. It's it's just a piece of of a claim that he made. So it doesn't really. There was supposedly one guy that Knapp was able to verify, right? That somebody came to his house, I guess, and interviewed him or was vetting him for one job or the other and i forget his name but nap talks about it in the book i think in the forward to the book mike something or other and they they tracked him down you know who i'm talking about or no no i don't now yeah it was another claim that was uh may actually very well be true but may not have anything to do with proving that he worked on flying saucers from another galaxy um but i think nap was able to find somebody who at some point had visited lazar for one reason or the other, and found out that you know he was a former former government worker or something like that. But I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that you would throw out there if you wanted to make a story. And make no doubt about it. I mean, Lazar is very intelligent, and if yeah. if he is lying about some of this stuff or all of it, I suspect it's some of it. Um, you know, I think he's I think he's coy enough to do it in a way that would lead. He just has this very agreeable kind of docile way about him that you know when when people think about liars they think about they think about charlatans they think about you know snake oil salesmen they think about greasy guys and selling you used cars they don't yeah. think about people talking very deadpan and you know I don't really care if you believe me or not it's actually quite a brilliant route it right it's exactly how you would want to to if you wanted to kind of make up a lie and you wanted to go meta about it, like it's exactly how you'd want to do it, right? Yeah, and I think you really got to kind of look at that in the context of the other people in the story. Uh, there's uh, John Lear, John Lear, um, who is the guy who introduced uh, Lazar to Nap, was is a crazy guy, and I think yeah, even Lazar would would describe him as such. He gives these ridiculous. Uh, explanations of you know how the world works and how you know, aliens have been in contact with the government and uh, you know he's, he's a 9-11 truth guy who thinks that they couldn't have flown into the uh, the world trade center the way they did he thinks that was all a conspiracy and he's just got this endless stream of uh, outrageous conspiracy theories that come across as as being to most people being quite ridiculous uh then you've got william cooper William Cooper was for even more extreme uh, type of person. Bill Cooper, he was an old conspiracy theorist who was into UFOs, was kind of his like his first thing. But then he kind of got into more kind of anti-government militia stuff. And he was talking about a whole bunch of crazy stuff. And he obviously was a 9-11 conspiracy theorist as well. And these were both people that George Knapp had, had interviewed uh, at one point or another. And uh, George Knapp even says that he, he regrets 
interviewing Bill Cooper because Bill Cooper was later shown to have just been making up a bunch of the stuff he was he was saying about UFOs like he was taking other people's work um, passing it off as something he discovered and I think he at one point he got tricked into repeating something that somebody had made up uh, as an entirely a hoax sighting or a hoax paper or something and he repeated it and that proved that he was he was lying so you know you've got this 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 William Cooper crazy conspiracy theorist didn't come across very well you've got John Lear who's slightly less crazy but still crazy uh didn't come across very well and then you have uh, Bob Lazar who does a much better job so all these three guys are people who have been interviewed by Knapp and Knapp actually eventually hits upon Bob Lazar and it's kind of like a gold mine because Lazar's story manages to remain self-consistent and Lazar is has this this quiet self-deprecating way about himself that lends credence to to his story and has enough of a uh, you know, connection with reality that uh, it, it seems seems quite plausible you can easily get sucked into it and so Knapp does these these articles about uh, Lazar and they go viral and so he does more and it just became this this big kind of big machine of uh, nap and lazar pumping out this 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 stuff uh for for the rest of the world but it's almost like he had tried to do it before by interviewing lear and cooper but it didn't work because they weren't as slick as lazar they weren't they didn't they had they were too outrageous they had crazy right. conspiracy theories but he hit upon the right guy with lazar and just uh, kept on it, and it worked out for both of them. Yeah, and it's definitely career-defining for George Knapp. And I actually, like we said earlier, I really like George Knapp. I, I enjoyed listening to his yeah. podcast with Rogan that he did. He's got a great radio voice, so I, I love listening to that. Like I used to listen to Art Bell a lot at night, you know, uh, going to bed. It was crazy. You know, you always have crazy dreams about aliens and all kinds of weird shit after that, but... But it was always cool, you know, to kind of let your mind wander and, and explore late at night, uh, you know, to Art Bell. And George Knapp has that same kind of affect to him. Yeah, you know, he, I actually uh, exchanged quite a few emails with George Knapp uh, before I knew who Bob Lazar was and before I even knew who George Knapp was. Oh, is that right? I just thought he was a, um, you know, a newsman, a reporter from a local Las Vegas TV channel which essentially is what he was but he had emailed me about uh, chemtrails there was there was some kind of chemtrail theory and actually I, I i see in my email uh thing that i had a skype conversation with him at some point which is something i did a lot like you know i still do obviously it's like talk to journalists about various things but i, I have no recollection of what we actually talked about <laughs> uh, mind control he, he, maybe you got zapped <laughs> you know the cia the was, got he, to you it wouldn't have been. It, it would have been chemtrails. We would have talked about the chemtrail conspiracy theory. But you know, I, I was interviewed quite a lot by various like journalists back then. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, I I talked to Bob. Uh, I talked to uh, George Knapp. I also talked to Jeremy Corbell for uh, a while before finding out who he was, and before I found out who Lazar was. Uh, Corbell had posted something on YouTube about a ufo sighting that he had had some other people had had in santa monica there were these uh kind of fiery things like flying around in the sky and uh i tracked down 
you know, with, with other people on Metabunk uh, from his video, it, it was just these uh, skydivers who do these pyrotechnic skydiving. They have flares attached to their ankles and they whiz around in their parachutes and it, it looks quite spectacular. And uh, Jeremy Corbell, <laughs> after that, you know, became my friend. And he kept calling me his friend and I had no idea why he was doing this. And then I think years passed and I'd forget, forgotten about this, this, this thing. And then he, I, we start arguing about something like probably like, you know, Lazar or something like that, or, or the, uh, Fravor or something. And it's like, you know, Corbell's like, Mick, I always considered you to be my friend. And I'm like, what, who are you? I couldn't remember talking to him originally, and then I, he mentioned something about the uh, the, the skydivers, and I went back and figured it out. But, but yeah, these these uh, strange connections. Like I I talked to the people involved here without realizing who they were. Of course, I never talked to Lazar, which would be an interesting conversation. Well, and nobody of any type of scientific prowess has talked to Lazar. I mean, wouldn't you want to sit mm-hmm. him up there with a physicist? And just let let somebody exactly. who's a physicist do. Exactly. Where is the world's foremost expert in yeah. you know warp drives? And why is he not asking Bob Lazar questions? Can he stand an hour with that guy? Or yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, or is he just going to do conversations with George Knapp? I mean, we, we keep making the same points here that you know, Lazar is just putting this cartoon version of physics out there, when supposedly he's the guy who was reverse engineering the physics. So why don't you hit us with a bit of physics and not just like, oh, yeah, we use you know, antimatter and it uh, creates, you know, how does it do these things? And what, or, or not even like, how does it do it? What were the measurements you made? You know, show me like, a, 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 what did one of the graphs look like? What, yeah. what units did you use? What instruments did you use to measure things? You know, beyond throwing golf balls at it, what actual <laughs> tests did you perform? <laughs> Well, you'd have to you'd have to be able to just withstand a thirty or forty five minute just battery of questions, just regular questions that a normal physicist would ask you over a beer. They don't even have to come prepared, you know. Yeah. We could just go grab a physicist off the street and be like, "Hey, all right, you know." We, and, and, we should and, just find somebody who has uh, a master's degree in physics and and a master's degree in electronics. I'm sure that such a person exists somewhere. Well, that was the other thing, yeah. too, about that Caltech degree, the electronic technology degree. I don't even think they offered electronic technology as a as a um, right. as a study. I think they offered something like electronics or something. But whatever he first claimed to have his degree in wasn't even a program there. Uh, so that was, you know, obviously another red flag there with the with the education. But, yeah, I mean, look. I would I would host that any day of the week. So if Bob wanted to come on and he wanted to, you know, just speak to a physicist, uh, you know, we could go and we, you know, we'd promise to select somebody who isn't even at the PhD level. Like we'll find you somebody with a master's in physics from a yeah. non Ivy League university. All right, that's what that's what we could promise. We'll find somebody from a from a public university with a master's in physics, just to you know square up for. 30 to 45 minutes and just have a conversation about exactly what you're talking about. What, you know, what are the weights and the measurements that you used? What tools did you use? You know, there's so many little questions in between all of these very broad stroke details. I want to go to um, Jeremy Corbell for a second because, you know, this speaks to kind of a broader question that I had for you that I wanted to ask as we're heading into the back end of this conversation. You know, look, 
Jeremy Corbell's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. He earns a certain degree of respect from me, regardless of whatever the hell else he does in his life, just because of that. It's one of the hardest possible things a human being can do, so I respect that immensely. Having said that, there hasn't been anything that Jeremy Corbell has added to any conversation that I've seen him in that really, to me, comes off as adding anything. As far as I'm concerned, the Lazar interview and the George Knapp interview could have been done without him sitting there. Yeah, and the Fravor interview too. Oh, uh, yeah, the Fravor interview. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Because the last time you were on, we talked about the reason I wanted to have you on is because you had debunked the Nimitz video. And I thought you did a fucking really good job. I thought your explanations were plausible. I thought they made sense. I thought you did a beautiful job on your YouTube channel of explaining exactly what was going on with the, you know. And then Corbell comes out with this theory that your assertion that, you know, the object may have been a bird is insane mm-hmm. because, you know, oh, the temperature of the water is different than the temperature of the bird, which then you debunked his analysis. I know, I debunked it when it wasn't even something I was claiming in the first place, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then, so. So, so then with this nap interview, Mick, Cor- yeah. Corbell takes this, like, victory lap on that. Like, oh, like he shut Mick West down. Did he? Oh. Yeah, you didn't, <laughs> didn't see, see that? that but, no. Oh, so you got to watch the George Knapp interview with Rogan because they talk about you and they talk about that little back and forth that you guys had about the Nimitz video. God, and crazy. and Corbell has this very matter-of-fact, like, yeah, like, you know, dealt with Mick West. That's over. He's so an idiot, ridiculous. you know. <laughs> it was so ridiculous because yeah. uh, I, I can't remember. Did we talk about this last time? But the, the whole cold bird thing. Uh, yeah, it, it, one of the videos, not not even the Fravor video, I'm not even talking about the Fravor video, it's just one of the other videos, the GoFast video, uh, shows an object that's cold and moving fairly slow. And there's two things that are cold and move fairly slow, uh, which is uh, balloons and well-insulated birds. And that, that, that was all all the point was. But I think it was like almost like a year after I, I suggested perhaps it was a bird, he comes out with this this thing where he's he seems like he spent months working on this, <laughs> analyzing the science, and discovered that uh, if a bird was really cold, it would be dead. Which <laughs> which, which makes no sense because it essentially is positing uh, a naked bird, a bird with no feathers, because right. you know, what he's talking about is the core temperature of the bird, and what I'm talking about is the temperature on the exterior of the feathers which is, you know, like the temperature on the exterior of an insulated jacket. It's the same as the air around it, which, or maybe a slightly warmer, but certainly a lot colder than than the, the sea level. But I don't even think the bird hypothesis, it was my main hypothesis. The, the main thing is that it's probably a balloon, and he doesn't even talk about that. So it's like he's got one thing that sounds good. It's like, oh, Mick West, like in his stupid cold bird theory. <laughs> but it... His objection to my cold bird theory is completely bogus. It has, makes no sense in a scientific way whatsoever. And it's not even my number one theory. He ignores the number one theory, which is probably because he, he can't debunk that one. But yeah, Corbell, I'm sure he's a nice guy to have a beer with. But he just likes to tell stories and he doesn't like his stories being shat upon. And so he pushes back with a, a different story, which also sounds good. But it, it's not—it's not doing any science. He's not revealing amazing things. He's not—he uh, doesn't 
even seem to really understand the objections that I raise. Either he doesn't understand them or he's ignoring them because he knows they make too much sense. So, yeah. Oh, I, I think, don't have that much I, respect for him. I think he's a nice guy. I'm sure he's a nice yeah. guy. And I think he wants to believe. I, you know, I I think, I don't think it's, you know, a, I don't think he's like an ultra nefarious person. I just think, I think he really wants to believe. And I think there are a lot of people that want to believe. Um, I think the, it's just the, that, though. In the, I think. Go ahead. No, I think there's, there's more than that. He isn't. He wants to believe, but he also wants people to believe him. He wants to be seen as this uh, this guy who weaponized his curiosity and discovered all this stuff and re- revealed it to the world. So it's not just he's just he's saying what he thinks is true. He's saying what he wants everybody else to think is true. There's this great moment in the George Knapp, Joe Rogan podcast. I'm going to find the number right now while I'm on... Uh it's one of the few remaining podcasts that Rogan left on YouTube. It's Joe Rogan experience number 1510, George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell. Um, there's this great moment in that one. Cause I've watched this one probably 25 or 30 times too. Just, I, just cause I like George Knapp's voice, but, uh, there's this great moment too, where they're talking about, you know, mutilated cattle, right? They're talking about okay. mutilated <laughs> animals out in a field and, you know, it was it was crazy. There was no blood, Mick. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they found the corpse and there was no blood and there was an incision. And how does that happen? You know, how does it happen that there's no blood? How does it happen that, you know, animals just wind up mutilated? Well, it's like, well, first off, that happens in nature, first and foremost, yes. right? <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't something that naturally incurred in nature, there's 10,000 other theories you could come up with, including whoever owns the ranch dragging the fucking thing out there for publicity that would come before aliens came down and you know, would randomly gut a goat for no reason in the middle of Nevada or wherever, and <laughs> yeah, then just fucking aliens? leave it there. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's even crop circles had a better explanation because you could be like, well, they're trying to they're trying to signal something to us, right? They're trying to tell us something, and you know, those were all debunked as well. But, um, but this there's this great moment where you know they're talking about this and. And, and and Rogan, uh, to his credit, is doing a better job yeah. of of demanding evidence. You know, he did that program, Joe Rogan Questions Everything, and he met a lot of these, you know, UFO people. And he even says on the NAP interview, you know, a lot of it's just bullshit. You know, not, they're just fucking weirdos that are just peddling bullshit. And that is, uh, unfortunately, not to not to talk shit about those people that is unfortunately the case in a lot of these things you have people that legitimately think they saw things you have people that want celebrity you have people that are legitimately mentally ill too um but they go through this thing where they're talking about these mutilations and rogan's saying you know where's the evidence where's the evidence and they say oh well we got a photo you know and so they you know we don't know if we should pull it up it's kind of gruesome it's kind of you know whatever and then they pull up a photo okay it's like what is it all right it's a photo of a dead animal out in a field well what the fuck does that mean yeah, you know, what, like what is that? I could walk out to the woods out in front of my house and see that. Yeah, and a lot of the photos you see in, in cattle mutilation cases are of just carcasses that have been there a few days, and so bits of them have been eaten away. Right. And the bits that get eaten away are like you know the face, like the the cheeks and stuff like that. And it's just just the way the animal, the way maggots attack um, cows. They lie lay their eggs in the lips. And they eat away their faces. And so it looks like you've got this, this 
these decisions. You know, you look into cattle mutilations from a skeptical perspective. You know, what are the actual explanations? And there are explanations out there for all these things. The FBI did a, a study of cattle mutilations, not because they thought it was aliens, but because they thought there was some band of satanic crazy people roaming the countryside, like killing cows, or at least there was concern that this was happening. And they examined like 20, 30 cases and went and looked at the carcasses and examined them. And they said they all had natural explanations. Like every single one of them, like they, you know, there was cow, cow was slit down the middle and that just happens because the gases expand inside the cow and the cow bursts and, you know, there's no blood because like it rains. Uh, you know, there's, they all had explanations. There were none of these cattle mutilations that were actually mysterious unless you didn't know much about what naturally happens to a cow when you leave it in a field. Uh, for two weeks. Yeah, and I think if you really objectively commit to wanting to get to the truth about this stuff, you have to you have to address all of the best points on the other side of yeah. the case. You know, as an investor, you know, my podcast is generally focused around finance and whatever other brain farts I have. But, you know, when, when we look at an investment or when I personally look at an investment, a company that I either want to uh, invest in because I think they're doing well or, or a company I want to short because I think either they're a fraud or, um, you know, there's some type of material misrepresentation or management's bad or something. I always want to hear the best argument on the other side of the coin. If I'm going to buy a company, I want to know the guy very well that hates the company, the smartest guy. Get me the best hedge fund manager with the most assets under management that hates this company and I need to know exactly what that guy has to say and I want to I want him to point me to all the evidence he has that this company is a piece of shit because I'm interested and you know certainly my money is interested right in objectively trying to identify whether or not this company will be able to overcome those challenges similarly if I'm going to short a company because I think it's a fraud and I think I've got indisputable proof that this company is fraudulent and that the regulators will you know, will eventually make the company go to zero or it'll go to zero on its own. I want to hear the case from the guy that thinks, wait a second, this isn't a fraud. Here's what you're missing. And what I find in these, you know, when I listen to like 1510 with Knapp and Corbell, and when I listen to Fravor, even there was a point in the Fravor interview where they, I think, brought up maybe something that you had said, or it was in the Lex Friedman Fravor interview, yeah. which was subsequent to the Joe Brogan one. So you had your chance to debunk it. And then they bring Fra uh, Friedman brings Fravor back on and they give him an opportunity to debunk what you said. And he doesn't do a very good job of it. No. And so I just think if you are pushing these stories, don't you don't you welcome the opportunity to to address the arguments on the other side of the coin instead of kind of pivot away from them? Yeah, I, I certainly would. But I, th I think what happens there is uh, they're already convinced of their own uh, side of the argument. And I think Fravor in particular, Commander Fravor, the, the pilot, uh, he has a very high opinion of himself. And so he thinks that I must be wrong because, you know, if I'm right, then he was wrong. So he thinks everything I say must be wrong. And so he doesn't even bother looking at it. And so you have him on the Lex Fridman show and Friedman asks him about about you know, the things I said, and he he can't really answer any of it, and he he, he doesn't. He just kind of ignores ignores the question. And the same thing with uh, Corbell. 
uh, he had Chad Underwood, who was the guy who took the the video uh, from the Nimitz encounter. He had him on the show, and he you know, said, oh, well, let's debunk Mick West, and they started to raise some of the questions. And But all, all uh, Corbell raised, essentially, was the stupid cold bird thing. And then some other things that weren't even things that I had claimed, like he, he said, like, oh, could the the movement be from the banking of the jet? And the guy said, oh, no, obviously not, and, which is something I would agree with because I, I, never, I never claimed that either. Right. So they're not really interested in getting into the, the actual nitty-gritty. Like I have a video about the, the Nimitz encounter called No Sudden Moves, which basically goes through the video kind of frame by frame and demonstrates that every time the object appears to move, it's actually the camera that's moving because you can correlate right. it with actual changes in the camera from the display and the way the you know the size changes or that everything rotates or you know whatever happens and that correlates to a movement and then a loss of the lock of the camera and yeah this one video should really demonstrate that there's there's nothing going on in terms of this particular video being uh, evidence of a fast moving craft but they studiously ignore addressing any of the claims in it. Yeah, they kind of hand wave it away with, oh, I know what I saw. Or they just they just kind of pretend it doesn't even exist because they don't really want uh, to get into the nitty gritty. And I think it's kind of intellectually dishonest, I think. Well, it is. And it's, and it's like this indignant kind of self-righteous, like, how dare you question me also, too. And that, that specifically that Bill Nye example that I brought up uh, with him on Larry King with the three naval officers who are, you know, in in the sense that they worked for the Navy, they were credible in that regard, you know, but they get to this point and, and, you know, to the, to the credit of these people, not to shit on them, but you know, these people may not be well-versed in, you know, how the scientific method works. Mm -hmm. They may not be yeah. well-versed in, you know, how legal arguments are made. So they don't, they, maybe they don't understand what proving something beyond a reasonable doubt is. Maybe they don't really understand exactly what, you know, the difference between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence is. Maybe they don't understand what it is that is necessary, you know, in the legal realm or in the scientific realm to make an argument, you know, to go from, hypothesis to uh you know provable maybe they don't yeah. understand that that body of evidence that needs to get done but then you know this diversion of just at one point the guy says to bill nye well well what was it then what was it then mr scientist <laughs> you know and that's nothing that's nothing that's just a question that's not you know that's yeah. not evidence to support your claim that's evidence that you don't even know what it was you know yeah no so. it's like people people know how to tell a story everyone knows how to tell a story and that's kind of what people default to doing. And they're not really good at questioning things. They're not really good at investigating. They're not really good at comparing different accounts and looking for flaws. Uh, so they they end up just telling a story. And right. once you've started telling a particular story, you kind of get stuck with it and you end up not investigating, but then you end up defending your story and you end up looking for things that support your story. You don't end up looking for, you know, science is all about disconfirming things. It's all about uh, falsifying things. You try to, you try to look at the most, the strongest argument against your hypothesis to try to disprove it. Because if it can withstand that, then it's more likely to be correct. Right. But instead, they look for confirming evidence. It's this fallacy of confirmation where you only look for confirming evidence for your story and you ignore all the evidence that uh, that dis disconfirms it or seems to suggest that some other explanation is more likely. 
So you see all these people just ignoring the the work that I did. Well, people in the investment community that listen to my podcast regularly know exactly what confirmation bias looks like in finance too, which is essentially, you know, if the, mm-hmm. the there are people that will fight to the death for the right to be victimized, uh, you know, for their they will fight to the death for the right to be wrong, d- despite demonstrable evidence to the contrary. You know, there's just some people yeah. out there that, you know, if the SEC comes out and says the company's a fraud, we're charging them with accounting fraud, there's people that'll go that step further and say, no, it's the SEC's wrong. There's a conspiracy there, too, you know? And then, oh, the Department of Justice comes in. Well, they're in on it, you know? Like, they just take it to the last iteration because they just don't want to be wrong. And uh, it's the same type of confirmation bias, right? Yeah, yeah. It's simple things like the uh, the sunk, co- sunk cost fallacy or the the gambler's fallacy and right. things like that. You know, people saying, "Oh, yeah, I've got so much money in, I should just you know, write it out," or people saying, "Oh, it hasn't done this for a while; it must do something else." Uh, you know, the <laughs> red hasn't come up for the last five spins of the roulette wheel, so the the next spin is more likely to be red. Right. These, these fallacies that people have—they're just kind of simple uh, human failings of, of of misunderstanding and you know, emotional uh, engagement with reality. That's uh, show up everywhere and uh, ufos are no ex- no exception is there anything else before we split about lazar that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you want to bring up or no uh, let me just think i got some notes here well he's he's got an interesting past I and mean, i don't know yeah i think people shy away from discussing it but the fact that just before all this happened uh, he he committed bigamy and his wife killed herself, according to various uh, public documents. Uh, you know, what does it say about his state of mind? I mean, I'm, you know, it, this is what I've read on, the, I think, let's see, otherhand.org, which has references to public court documents. But I think this is, you know, isn't disputed. No, it's not. He, disputed. he was married to uh, a woman called Carol, and then he married someone else. Uh, and two days later, Carol killed herself. Like, yeah, it's it's things like that. that you know, and, and then the, the other things, I, I don't want to seem like I'm doing character assassination, but part of his story is that he got a security clearance. Uh, and yet there's all these things in his life that kind of would suggest that he, he perhaps wouldn't get one. Uh, and of course, later on, you've got the, the issues of him uh, working, doing some work with a brothel in some regard and getting arrested for that and got sentenced to three months probation. Uh, it's just, I think if people want to take Lazar at his word, you can have to look at the whole man. If all you have is just him as a person, uh, as being the main reason that you believe it, you know, he sounds like he's telling the truth. Which he does. Like you listen to him, and he he tells a good story. But you know, look at the broader picture. Look at not just like who he was as a person, but who were the people around him. You know, look at uh, look at Leah. Look at um, uh, William Cooper, uh, and look at you know, anybody else who was involved. And you know what's and look at George Knapp. George Knapp, I think, is a, is a nice guy and very bright. But his whole career seems to be revolve around this one case, this this whole uh, this Lazar case. 
So he has you know, motivation to to say it's uh, say it's true. I'm not saying he's lying, but I don't think he has very much motivation to disprove it. Well, what's interesting is the, uh, about the the affair is there's also this ancillary story that and you just correct me if I'm wrong, but I I remember Lazar saying at one point. Oh, you know, I was getting so many phone calls from S4 at night and I was picking up and leaving at night so often that my wife thought that I was having an affair. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm. He, he said that several times. Um, well, and, that would, would have been his second wife, though. Cor- correct. Yeah, that she apparently, you know, was was questioning. And I think that is why he decided to go public or why he decided to leave uh, or something, I, or why he decided to take people out there to prove that, uh, you know, supposedly on a Wednesday when they were doing these tests, that's another yeah. thing too. He claims, oh, I know the days that they were doing the tests of the craft, so I took people out there to see it, and we've got video of it. Well, th- there really isn't any video of anything, number one. Uh, Some lights in the sky. Right, exactly. So he could have very well brought people out the day he knew that, you know, something else was going on. There was, you know, flares going up, or he could have set something up to, you know, go out there and shoot up in the sky. I mean, you just, you don't know. Um, but yeah. I, interesting, again, we were talking earlier about, all right, like lies maybe based on truth, that that link of the affair and then maybe him claiming, oh, my wife thought, and, and all unsubstantiated on my part, and I don't have any evidence that any of this means anything. And we're not psychiatrists or psychotherapists, so we don't know. But well, I just, it's, it's peculiar. He did actually uh, separate from his wife at that time in 1989, just after he was fired, uh, or you know, left, supposedly. Right. So that might have been. Uh, and then, you know, they they were divorced the next year, but and then there's some there's some other stuff like you know there's these other sites that go into more detail about his his financial affairs, like he he declared bankruptcy, and then his new wife bought a house in her name, and then after they divorced, she gave him the house because it was really his house; he'd paid for it, like a bit of. You know, avoiding bankruptcy proceedings there. Um, it's just, you know, it's it, he doesn't seem like the most reliable narrator of a story because of all these things going on. And he was only married for, to his second wife for uh, like three years, I think, or two years before they actually split up. So, you know, he, he had a quite a volatile personal life, you know, which may, may not be any reflection upon him as a person, but it, it can't help but help have an effect uh, on the on his thinking around that time. If he's just you know had one wife die and then another one uh, be married to her for two years and then uh, his marriage becomes unstable and then uh, she leaves him or he leaves her. So I don't know, but you know, I, obviously this is it's a minor point. Uh, it's just one more thing to consider. You don't want to be saying like oh you know he's he worked in a brothel once after the fact, therefore he's a liar. That doesn't make any sense. That's not a good argument. But it's worth looking at the the broader picture. You believe that his story is an amalgam of truth and lies? Well, yes, but I don't think that the truth parts of it are particularly interesting. So it's it's the interesting parts of it are essentially all lies. The the his claims that he was hired to reverse engineer flying saucers I think are lies. The claims that he observed actual anti-gravity with with uh, golf balls bouncing off things. I think those are, are lies. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, the claims that he saw these briefing documents with uh, 
evidence of government involvement with aliens from Zeta Reticula uh, are also lies. And the truth that's sprinkled in there is, you know, is boring stuff like, uh, you know, he worked in Los Alamos at one point. But uh, mostly lies, and if but there's, well-told lies. If there's any evidence to the contrary, any real direct evidence, we would be happy to consider it, right? Absolutely, yeah, of course. Uh, but, you know, we're not, we're not really seeing it. Now, what we really need to see is... I think like what we were talking about earlier, like guess get into the weeds of what actual science was done. And if you can't do that, you know, why not? Right. Is it because you don't understand the actual science or because there wasn't actually science done, or is there some other reason why you're you're not talking about the the actual science? But right now, it's a guy telling a story that sounds like a science fiction story and with no actual evidence to back up the reality of that story. And would you speak to uh, Jeremy Corbell or Bob if they wanted to come on and you sure, know, yeah. either speak to you or speak to you and somebody who's a you know somebody who's got a master's in physics? I talk to anybody. Perfect. That's all you need to know. So everything's open for consideration. But as of right now, that is pretty much where we stand. Mick West, my man, thanks so much for uh, doing this. Man, taking two hours out of your day to talk to me and <laughs> for considering it, even though I had to kind of. Uh, annoy you about it <laughs> yeah no worries it was an interesting uh interesting journey actually like going down the bob lazar rabbit hole as a lot of it i wasn't that familiar with at all like i said i didn't i hadn't really heard of him before that that post on metapunk but worth putting down you think right yeah it's 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 worth it but i i don't think we have put it down <laughs> i think you know the stuff that we've talked about today has been talked about before uh, and it's just like almost like a new generation of people is going to believe Bob Lazar and an, another generation of people is going to think it's full of, full of crap and you're, you're never going to resolve it. Well, hopefully the next time uh, bold claims are being made in the absence of uh, bold evidence, which of course is necessary to substantiate bold claims, I would love to have you back on and, uh, and talk to you about it. Yeah, that would be great. All right, Mick West, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it, and we'll talk soon. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. That was the one, the only, Mr. Mick West. Happy that he decided to do that today. I really had to annoy him about it for the last couple of months. This one was more personal for me. I wanted to speak to him about it because I wanted to speak to somebody about it, and I figured if he did some research and looked into it, he'd be a proper person to talk about it because you know what? You got to question the answers is what you got to do, and I like doing that, and if the truth is that Lazar fucking worked on alien craft, we'll get evidence of it at some point, some way, somehow, but as for right now, it's not looking likely. Fools, I'm the fuck out of here. Peace.